0: Unfound is a podcast that has now covered over 235 disappearances. It has an interview-based format and concentrates on the facts, not the theories. Today, and for the tenth time, I will take you back to the beginning, then right up to the present, as I cover recent updates on many of Unfound's cases. I'm Ed Dunsell, and this is unfound. lives it's often hard to tell if we're moving forward at all are we making more friends are we getting out of debt will we ever retire me i'm never going to retire i love what i do what makes this self-assessment difficult is that as we age things don't get easier more aches and pains more trips to the doctor Diagnoses of ailments and diseases that have no cures. And, as we all know, how we feel certainly affects how we view everything else in our lives. I'm bringing this all up because I want you to know that progress is being made with disappearance cases. Granted, it might be hard to measure right at this second. But between the education we do here at Unfound, what my friend Megan does at the Charlie Project, making her website better and better year after year, John Lorden, who runs the best true crime channel, uh, besides our own, on YouTube, for a group like Adventures with Purpose, who specialize in the rare disappearances of people with their vehicles, bloggers like Heather Grotman and crime blogger 1983, and many others who take this work seriously, I want to assure you that progress is being made and it will continue in 2022. And now, a summary of Unfound. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Lynez's website, charlieproject.org, although I did not need it for this episode. Unfound was born out of the idea that the public should know as much as it can about missing persons cases. I, as the host, go about getting you all the facts I can by interviewing those people who are closest to the case, usually family members. However, we've also had bloggers, reporters, and private investigators on the program, but only two law enforcement officers. Why? Because the police usually don't want to tell me anything. And unlike many programs that splice in the host's questions and comments after, Unfound plays every interview as it was recorded, minus the mistakes. The interviews are played in this manner because I believe you, the listeners, need to be reassured that nothing is taken out of context and that you are listening to a conversation like any two people might have. The first call I ever made representing myself as the host of Unfound was to Mary Lyle, mother of Suzanne Lau, call happened sometime in late july 2016 i was at my parents place in pennsylvania i can remember standing in their bedroom with the door shut for privacy when i made the call that's a true story she surely had no idea who i was and at that point i had no history of ever interviewing anybody i can kind of rely on my extensive resume now but at the time i was just a guy on the other end of the phone line i was very nervous However, Mary couldn't have been friendlier, and I would say these days we talk about once every two months, and she has been very supportive of Unfound, I can't even begin to tell you, sending several future guests my way. I hope to meet her in person sometime soon. That conversation was followed by a call to Patrick Marker, the guest for the Joshua Guimond episode, then Tim Wright for the Ben Charles Padilla episode, and before I knew it, Unfound had gained some momentum. Probably the next big thing that happened for Unfound that pushed it forward was a listener kind of becoming my right-hand woman to find guests for the program. Emily, you've heard me mention her many times before, is responsible for finding probably half the guests you've heard on Unfound since May of 2017. Her passion and compassion make her excellent at what she does. She stays in contact with guests even after they've been on the program. Then, in December 2017, Unfound became linked with the Tribune Review in Pittsburgh. It carried Unfound on its website throughout 2018, and I helped them cover older missing persons cases in western Pennsylvania through monthly articles. Along the way, Unfound has also picked up Cherie Biggs, researcher and overseer of both the Unfound live show on YouTube and the Unfound think tank. Unfound also has Carrie Welburn and Heather Dobbins, administrators for the discussion group on Facebook. Heather is now also the manager of the Unfound store, Dr. Eric Grabowski, a personal confidant and independent researcher, and host of Unfound on the Ground, and Natasha, who is in charge of the website and the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube. There have been books and newsletters and t-shirts and poll questions, the website, theunfoundpodcast.com, the interviews with Dr. Grace Telesco, an unexpected and unpermitted mention on 48 Hours, college presentations, and most importantly, the respect and concern all of you continue to show for Unfound's many, many guests. Like the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth update episodes from the summer of 2018, April 2019, September 2019, December 2019, April 2020, August 2020, December 2020, April 2021, and August 2021, respectively, I'll be doing all the talking today. I'm Ed Denzel. I'm originally from Leechburg, Pennsylvania. I attended Grove City College, class of 1993. I graduated with a degree in business that I've never had to use. I've had all sorts of odd jobs, including magic show stage manager, printer and fax machine technician, department of transportation flag person, model, and Star Trek actor. I lived in Las Vegas from 1998 to 2011, Madeira Beach, Florida from 2011 to 2019, and now I make Clearwater Beach, Florida my home. But Vegas is still my favorite city. Unfound news. A new Unfound Now has just come out. Yes, on the same day as this episode. What recent disappearance did I examine? You'll have to go to the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube to find out for yourself. Next, there will be no Unfound newsletter coming out tomorrow. Due to the holidays and this update episode essentially being a newsletter itself, the next one will come out February 1st right on schedule. Finally, I hope everyone had a beautiful Christmas. And tonight, please have an exciting but safe New Year's celebration. Please don't do anything stupid. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Potomatic, iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Deezer, and YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us for the Unfound live show. All of you can talk with me, and I can answer your questions. Contribute to Unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast. You can also contribute at PayPal, paypal.me forward slash Podcast. I also need to give a huge shout out to all the people who have monetarily contributed using Super Chat during the live show on Wednesday nights. Thank you for watching and thank you for donating. The email address unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. Merchandise The Books at Amazon.com in both ebook and print form. Do not forget the reviews. Shirts at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com, or you can track down my assistant, Heather, in the Facebook group. Playing cards at makeplayingcards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfoundpodcast. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com, and please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. Okay, if this is your first time listening to an update episode, and that's always possible. People are finding Unfound for the first time all the time. The way this goes is I do not read from a script for these updates. What I do is I go through all the disappearances that Unfound has covered, 235 of them now. I go and check... uh, If there are any updates, any news. Uh, For example, you'll hear a couple stories about remains being found near where missing people went missing. And I'll look at that and that will be put into my notes. So I'm not reading from a script. I'm just looking at a few words and uh, just have the rest of it kind of just up here in my head because if I were to type all this out, it would take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And um, I know that after doing the first nine, this is the best way to do it. A couple update episodes ago, I now include, I started including uh, the intro to each of those episodes for those of you who maybe forget exactly what the circumstances were for that particular disappearance. And I thought that was a really great suggestion a le- listener made to me earlier this year. So you will hear me announce the name, and then I will read the intro. That's that little part before the music starts for every episode. And then I will go into the update. So if you hear any ums and you knows and likes and pregnant pauses and things like that, it's because I'm doing this off my off the top of my head. So please excuse that. Thanks. And I will be going in the order that the disappearance appeared on Unfound. So we'll be going back to September 2016 and working our way up to the end of 2021. First update, Andrea Bowman. Andrea Michelle Bowman was an adopted 14-year-old from Hamilton, Michigan. On March 11th 1989, she allegedly stole money from her parents and headed out the door. She never came home, and despite police Following up on many alleged sightings, she was never seen again. Anybody who has been listening to Unfound for any amount of time, even if it's maybe just a couple months, knows uh, what the uh, conclusion to this disappearance was. Uh, A couple years ago, Dennis Bowman, Andrea's adopted father, was charged with the murder of a woman in Virginia in 1980. And because of that, using DNA, by the way, and because of that, uh, police were able to get a search warrant for the Bowman property in Michigan. And while when they did that search, they found Andrea's remains buried on that property. And so the update is that just recently, just within, of course, all of these re- updates, or I guess you what you might say recent, since uh, the beginning of September of 2021, these Updates only include that time frame up until the present of uh, December 31st, 2021. Dennis Bowman has chosen to plead guilty to murdering Andrea. I think it's second-degree murder, and the sentencing will be in February. You should know, though, he also pled guilty in this murder of this woman in Virginia in 1980, so he's already in jail for that. As you would suspect, he is not a young man, and he's going to die in jail no matter what. So whatever sentence he gets for the murder of Andrea probably is – I don't know how much it means. It's certainly symbolic. Certainly it's good that we know what happened. We know that he killed Andrea. That's certainly good to know, but as far as – him staying in jail making sure he stays in jail he's going to be staying in jail just for the other murder alone hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. It would have been interesting for there to be a trial. Of course, with any trial, there are risks. Some technicality if he somehow was found not guilty or, or uh, a hung jury. Of course, we'll be talking about a hung jury later in this episode. But there are al- always risks. But to hear the facts as the police think whatever they are, uh, the chance maybe of Dennis Bowman getting up on the stand, although maybe the odds of that in a trial would have been very, very low. It might have helped us as people who study disappearances to hear a little bit more about that. It might have helped us look at other teenager child disappearances and ...to get a better handle on them. Granted, on Unfound, we don't cover many disappearances like that. But still, it might have been from an educational point of view to be helpful. That's not going to happen. I'll get over it. I'm happy that uh, Kathy Turkanian, Andreas Alexis' that was the name that Kathy gave uh, her daughter when she was born... That uh, Alexis's mother uh, will get the the justice she's been looking for uh, for about a little over 10 years now. She was right from the beginning. Dennis Bowman uh, did kill Andrea and did put her in the backyard exactly as Kathy told me when I interviewed her back in 2016, although we did not specifically talk about that during the interview. The big question still remains, did Dennis's mother, Andrea's adoptive mother, know about all of this? She's not been charged with anything. It's hard to believe that she didn't suspect something at some time. But as of the publishing of this episode on December 31st of 2021, she has not been charged with anything. So that's the update. Uh, Dennis Bowman has pled guilty to murdering Andrea. He would be sentenced in February. And either way, he was not going to be getting out of jail before his life ended. So I, I think this is finally drawing to a close this entire case, This what we now know as a murder case that started way back in 1989. And I think this should be something that many families think about that – it could be thirty years, over thirty years, and still justice can be done. It's hard to be patient. It's hard. It, you want things to be over as quickly as possible. You want the person to be found alive or deceased. If there was a foul play, you want that person or people to be charged. And sometimes it just takes time. And this is a perfect example of it. Next. Christopher Hyde. You may be thinking if you've listened to a previous update episode that his remains were found and there's no cause of death. Why is there an update? Uh, First, I will read the paragraph. Christopher Vernon Hyde was a 23-year-old thought to be living in Orlando, Florida in early 2000. However, on June 25th, 2003, he was sighted in Bradenton, Florida – How he got there, nobody knows. Unfortunately, he was never seen again. This is the disappearance we covered at the end of 2016. And maybe it had to be over a year ago. I don't know what update episode it was, but I talked about how uh, finally uh, Hillsborough County uh, Sheriff's Office, which is the Tampa area, were able to match DNA to remains that were found way back in 2003 to to Chris. The reason I'm doing the up, uh, update is because his sister Lila, who was the guest for that episode, still seems to be looking into this. Uh, she seems to have some doubts as to whether this is true or not. and And it comes from – there was a picture posted within the last few months – of a homeless man in the Hillsborough, Pinellas County, which is where I live, or down in Sarasota, Bradenton area, of a a guy who kind of looks like Chris. And so she's thinking, uh, could this be a mistake? Now, the reason I think this picture popped up is because somebody had heard about Christopher being missing but did not know the story about the remains being found. And the person sent this picture or posted it somewhere, Lila saw it, and – then starts doubting whether the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office uh, came to the correct conclusion. I'm going to be honest with you. I saw the picture. I don't know if I posted it in the Facebook group on on Facebook. Imagine that. But to me, it does not look like Chris at all. Uh, You look at the facial features, and I just – it's – I think at first glance – It looks a little bit like Chris, but when you really start looking at the different features, I just don't think it's him. In addition, I don't believe that the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office made a mistake regarding this. Very sad. Probably never going to know what happened to Chris, but I do believe that those remains that were found way back in 2003 and then identified within the last couple years are his And uh, if they use DNA to do it, I don't know how you could really uh, argue with that. And it also seems that we're never going to know uh, what happened to Chris, why he died, which is very common with uh, a lot of these disappearances where remains are found after a while, not right away. And it can be very difficult to determine cause of death. So uh, if you've heard anything about that. In the last few months, maybe you saw that picture and maybe you've seen Lila posting, making some comments about it, being a little bit confused. Uh, I have to say that I, I just think that it's uh, – that this is probably not correct. I think that the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office made the right decision back in – what was it, 2019 or 2020 in identifying these remains from 2003 as being Christopher Hyde. Next, Rebecca Gary. Becky Pauline Gary was a 32-year-old single mother living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She liked making friends at local coffee shops and hobnobbing with the city's upper class. On December 27, 1988, she called her sister telling her things weren't working out in Baton Rouge and that she was ready to move to Shreveport. Becky was never seen again. A listener of mine uh got interested in this disappearance earlier this year, a listener of Unfound. Uh she continues to work on it. And I think in the last update episode, if not the one before that, I talked about how this listener had discovered that Becky was around this man and woman at the time who allegedly, right after Becky went missing in late nineteen eighty eight, so I'm recording this on December 28th, so almost exactly 33 years ago. I can do the math uh, plus a day. They left the Louisiana, I think, and and, and uh, left Louisiana and moved to Ohio. Shortly after this, certainly caught this listener's attention. She is a member of the think tank. She's very educated in in disappearances. So. She continues to look into this. She actually ended up contacting uh, the guy, and the woman I think is deceased, unfortunately, but the guy's still alive. Seemingly had no idea that Becky was missing, but this could be something. What I, I, what I would add to this, and I have this right in my notes – if you go back and listen to that episode, it is certainly believable that there was some kind of foul play. Becky was uh, seemed to hang around a lot of different guys. And we've talked about that before. Uh, guys being in some w- woman's what I call orbit, and they're just looking to have a chance with her. One could get... If one guy finds out she's seeing somebody else, he gets ticked off. We have to remember that when... It was discovered that she was missing. They went over to her apartment. Then there were two glasses of water or something in there, even though she lived by herself. Her luggage was still there. It looked like she was, as I just read in the the paragraph, she was getting ready to move. And then something got in the way of that. Certainly easy to believe that this was foul play. Absolutely. What I would also, though, encourage you to think about is we have to remember the season in which this happened, the Christmas season, and being that we're in it right now. And even though it's the most, you know, Andy Williams said, the most wonderful time of the year, this is also one of the times of the year when people are most likely to commit suicide and be very depressed if they are separated from family and friends and they wish their lives were going a different way. And for all maybe reasons that make a lot of sense and then a lot of reasons that don't make a sense at all, at least to people. Viewing that person. So I think we also have to keep that in mind. We cannot discount the idea, I think, at this point, even 33 years later, that could it be that she was very depressed, holiday season, not being around a family? Yes, she was going to see the family, but this was after Christmas, and she she didn't make it there in time. And was there some depression going on, mania going on, panic attack, guilt still have to be open to that 33 years later. Now, that, of course, that would not be something if she disappeared in May. Then maybe that wouldn't be a topic we would consider, given the facts. But given that it was this holiday season, and all of you know uh, about this uh, a paradox, I guess you might say, the most wonderful time of the year, but it's also a time when people more, are more likely to get depressed and feel guilty about whatever. Just got to keep that in mind, I think, in regards to Becky Gary's disappearance. Next, disappearance, Eric Franks. Eric Lee Franks was a 38-year-old from Saginaw, Michigan. He loved children and communicating with his friends on social media. On March on March 21st, 2011, according to the mother of Eric's biological daughter, she saw him drive away from her house. However, no one noticed he was missing for six months. He was never seen again. Remember over a year ago that his car was found what I would call miraculously. And then earlier this year, finally, now why do they wait to do these things? I don't know. But we finally uh, got to watch some video or hear some audio. It was in uh, the local news up in uh, in, in in Michigan and elsewhere about the interview that was done with Eric's ex-girlfriend, Kendra, who is now deceased, and her uh, husband, John. And we now know that Kendra lied during that interview. Of course, the tough part is that, and the reason I'm doing an update on it, is that we can have all these things happen. This is a disappearance that is going to be... 11 years old in three months, and the car is found, and these audio tapes are released, and we know that at least Kendra was lying, and John was also talked to, and claimed total ignorance on the whole thing, and still, this disappearance is unsolved. The car found, Eric not found. So and that house where the car was for all that time has been searched uh, last year into this year, nothing found. This just shows you – and re- once again, the reason I'm doing this update is because this just shows you how very – you can go a long time, nothing going on with a disappearance, and something suddenly big, huge happens, and then it can go back to being as quiet as ever just as quickly. Uh, I, I guess you might com- um, compare it to like flying, pilots talk about flying, hours of uh, nothing happened, happening accentuated by seconds of sheer terror. And so this is the way it is with disappearance, although I might not use the word terror, but seconds or days if not weeks of excitement. Something's going. Some, this is going to get solved, and then all of a sudden it goes back to completely silent again. This is very common. I know many of you know about Eric's disappearance, and you should just remember this is not unique. Certainly unique regarding his car being found the way it was found, and nobody could have believed that it was going to be in one piece and, and actually running condition. But this is very common in all different types of disappearance. It doesn't matter if it's men, women, children, that nothing for many years, then maybe something happens and it looks like it's going to get solved and then it can go silent just as quickly. And it seems like that is what is going on with Eric's the, – the investigation of Eric's disappearance now. That's my perception. Things can change at any time. Unfortunately, Kendra is deceased. John's still out there, but to my knowledge, he's still walking around a free man. So what has gone on over the last year has not changed John's, Kendra's husband's status at all. Next disappearance, Brandon Williams. Brandon Williams, Haas to his family, was a 33-year-old from Ephraim, Utah. He had lived in such wide-ranging places as the Hamptons and California. On May 17th, 2013, he got on a bus in Salt Lake City heading back to where he lived in Key West, Florida. On May 18th, he made a call to a friend saying he was in Nashville. He was never seen again. There's no information regarding his disappearance, but I do want to announce that just within the past month that Brandon's mother died. Dee Dee Bown was her name. For the episode, uh, Brandon's sister Stormy was the guest, but I did have a chance back in 2017 when we originally covered this disappearance to talk to Brandon's mother. I had a chance to talk to her a little bit with stormy on the phone. And then maybe once since then, maybe twice since then, uh, I got to speak to, to stormy and her, but she passed away within the past month. Um, my perception is that, uh, she uh, died young uh and uh I think she had cancer. Uh she struggled with that, fought it for a long time. Many of you I know uh follow Stormy are friends with Stormy Brandon's sister. You know that she had her health struggles with cancer a couple years ago and she's very fortunate um to have recovered from that and still be around. Uh, you know, we're all very of course happy about that, but um, cancer got DD about a month ago. And as I say every time, and I'll be talking about uh, a, another death later in this update episode, these hit me every time, even though I didn't know DD as well as Stormy, and I didn't know DD as well as, of course, all the other guests who have been on Found. DD technically wasn't a guest, but it hits me hard every time. It's just a big, uh, feel, a huge letdown that these people did not get answers before they left this earth. Of course, there are some belief systems that think that when we leave here, we will go somewhere else and all answers, all questions of life and death will be answered. And then, of course, we know other belief systems where once we die, there's nothing. So that's – so I, I'm not here to do religion, but I still think it's best that we try to find these answers while we're still all here in the material world no matter what our belief system is because there's no guarantees, of course. We are all fallible when it comes to our faiths and beliefs and things. So I just worry about trying to find answers here in the material world, and so that's why I think I always feel like that, that – um just could not get those answers before DD Dee Dee left this earth. Brandon's, I would admit, man, one of the, um, one of the tougher ones to really try to get a handle on, given that he was traveling across the United States. He was going by Greyhound and he did have a, uh, an addiction that he was struggling with and it, The belief is that he was in Nashville when he went missing, but early on in his disappearance, there was a belief maybe he disappeared in Atlanta. So very, very difficult. And then I can tell you since this episode came out in 2017, there are people who believe that maybe he really did make it back to Key West and something happened there. So it's a tough disappearance, and then on top of that, his mother dies. Uh, Very sad. Next, disappearances, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman. Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman were teenagers from Oklahoma that had gone to elementary school together, and although they went to different high schools, they remained close friends. On December 30th, 1999, they were at Ashley's house in the town of Welch. A fire broke out in the home, and when it was extinguished, Ashley's parents were found dead. But Laura and Ashley were never seen again. This is another disappearance maybe very much like Andrea Bowman's that if you've been following Unfound and many other places have covered Laura and Ashley's disappearances. In fact, there was a TV program dedicated to their uh, disappearance, and I know that um, Laura's mother has made several appearances, and she was the guest way back there in 2017 that – We now know that Laura and Ashley were murdered, and it's just now uh, you're trying to find where their remains were put. A lot of people have been looking over the last few years, and it does seem to me that it's a little more organized than it was. At some point, they were just going through – going and looking at pits and wells in, in the area and putting cameras down in them. That's with. It doesn't seem to me any rhyme or reason to it, but much more recently they've started looking at these uh, three men who were responsible for it, and uh, of course two of them died before they could be brought to justice. So they've been looking at where these men were living at the time, their properties, and I get the idea at least in one of these situations like the house or trailer or whatever it was isn't even there anymore. So they've been doing some of that, looking at these properties, which seems to me like uh, much more logical than just randomly going around and looking into caves, or their caves in Oklahoma, looking down into wells. And I and I know the people who continue to care um, about Laura, their fr- friends and family. The people closest to Lauren Ashley uh, are very desperate. I still think, though, that any search has to be done in a very uh, logical manner. Does it make sense? I think that's what you always have to ask yourself when you're planning to do a search. It's great to get volunteers, and I'll bring my camera, and I'll bring my ATV, and I'll bring my drone, and we'll go out. That's all great, but you got to have a plan, and it, and it has to be – go right from what you think you know about the disappearance, and what you know if it is a murder and you have an, an idea who might have done it. Where does that take you in contrast to, well, we know that there is these pits out somewhere, and let's just go take a look. The odds of that happening are so, so low. We know it happens. But you also have to figure into it that people who volunteer, they can get burnout too. You know, Going out, not finding anything, not finding anything, not finding anything. So it's always good to have a plan that makes logical sense. And it does seem to me much more recently that um, it does seem more logical taking a look at these properties. And it, if, if nothing else, it makes a lot of sense because we know that – Uh, For example, Andrea Bowman found on her parents' property. Zoe Campos we'll talk about here in a moment um, found on Carlos Rodriguez's property. And there are many, many, many other examples, even if we want to go to serial killers. John Wayne Gacy killed all those young men and was putting them in the crawl space under his house. So it it makes a lot of sense to start looking at the killer's own property – And places uh, where they lived, places they had access to, places they like to go hang out, whether it's hunting, fishing, anything like that, out in nature. Next, kind of an update, Ashley Kohler. Maybe some of you have not had a chance to listen to last week's episode yet. I would not be surprised given that... I would not be surprised given that uh, it is the holiday time. You have other things to do. I totally respect that. You should be spending this time with your friends and family. This time is very important, very special. And the episode will be there when you're ready, as will all the episodes when you're ready. Uh, That's what I always tell the guests. uh, that When they appear on the program and I upload it, that – Episode uh, will be on the Internet forever as long as the Internet exists or, uh, of course, I have to keep paying the bill to Podomatic or wherever else. Of course, that counts for something as well. But I, of course, continue to plan to do that. But um, next is Ashley Kohler. Ashley Kohler was a 20-year-old from Corona, California. She was a tomboy who loved cooking. Ashley's mother started noticing changes in her in May 2007 but seemingly had no reason to be concerned. She last saw Ashley in July 2009, and although a friend spoke to Ashley a month later, Ashley was never seen again. Now know that uh, in the original episode going way back, what was that now, to 2018, that Ashley had gotten into prostitution, found out that she had an addiction, and just last week we revisited that Disappearance mainly because Ashley's disappearance just does not get much mention. when I have ended up talking to many of you through either through messenger or through uh, email or during the live show or even in my presentations to college students. The two I've done so far Ashley's disappearance has not come up why it's fairly unique because of it's because it's so vague. We don't really have a city. we don't have a date. Uh, there's certainly rumors about it could be a murder, maybe some suspects and things. but it's all very, very vague, which maybe kind of like um, Jackie Letneys who disappeared, went to, to Alaska. Do you remember that disappearance? Kind of like his, but still still very unique. So I wanted to cover it again, and so I did. And uh, that's how kind of one of the ways we ended this year of 2021. If you haven't cha- had a chance to listen to it yet again, or maybe you haven't even listened to the first episode going way back to a couple years ago, Uh, The interview is with her mother, Kim, and there was new commentary at the end of this new episode when we revisited it because my insight into it has changed, and so I talk about that, and in general, I think that Ashley's disappearance, even though she was um, selling her services online, I think that this disappearance has to be looked at more in the vein of a drug disappearance than a sex worker disappearance. If we're looking at a cause, it seems to me the drug, the drug theory makes more sense to, than the sex worker theory. In comparing it to other disappearances of other uh, prostitutes, uh, sex workers... Uh, In comparison, it just seems like Ashley's is a little bit different than those. You can listen to the new episode and decide for yourself. But the update is that you might not know it, but uh, we revisited her disappearance this past Friday. That would be December 24th of 2021. Next disappearance, Evelyn Hartley. Not technically an update, but I wanted to talk about it anyway because it's been on my mind. Evelyn Grace Hartley was a 15-year-old from La Crosse, Wisconsin. She was a popular girl who didn't mind studying studying on a Friday night. Friday night. Like I said, you're going to hear some mistakes during this episode. On October 24th, 1953, she was babysitting for the first time at the home of the Rasmussens. At 8.30 p.m., Evelyn's father called to see how she was doing There was no answer. Worried, he drove over to see Evelyn and found the house had been broken into. Evelyn was gone. She was never seen again. Her disappearance has been on my mind a lot because it is very similar to the disappearance and we now know murder of Janelle Matthews. Of course, I became intertwined with that, and that will, of course, be in a later update. And given that I've been thinking so much about it, if you're wondering, well, how are they similar if you're not that 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 familiar with both of them, in both situations we had uh, teenagers – of course Janelle was just 12, Evelyn was 15 – who were home by themselves. Evelyn was technically not home alone. She was babysitting a, a toddler, I don't know, six months old or something, but essentially home by herself. And when people came home, like it just read in this paragraph, the teenager isn't there, and we're still wondering about what happened. And the question will always be in both of these disappearances – we now know murder for Janelle Matthews – is that were Evelyn and Janelle the targets – Somebody knew in each in each of these people knew that they were home by themselves and did something to them. Or was this a question of uh, a robber, a burglar showed up thinking nobody was home, goes in and oh, there's Evelyn. Oh, there's Janelle. And this burglar had or burglars had to do something on the fly because these teenagers, the, these girls saw the face Of the guy or men, and just take for granted it was men, and had to take these girls with them. Still not sure. Maybe even in both of them, and once again, we'll get to Janelle's uh, murder here in a bit. So Evelyn's disappearance continues to be on my mind. We have to realize we're now—this disappearance is now— 68 years old over 68 years and I'm sure when it happened back in October 1953 that nobody could have guessed that it would go unsolved this long you remember that my uh, friend, my blogger Anthony uh, was the guest for this episode did a lot of great work on it a lot of uh, news articles written about Evelyn's disappearance over the years a lot of pictures and maps and diagrams and everything, but still her disappearance is unsolved and just don't know what to make of it. So it's been on my mind because of what I've been, in, it was involved with in, in October and maybe you'll be thinking about it too, uh, maybe taking another look at it, maybe going back and listening to that episode and trying to decide for yourself once again, was Evelyn targeted or was this a burglary gone bad? The next disappearance, and we actually could include Brian Sullivan's disappearance in this as well, is Dominic Holly Grisham. Dominic Taishun Holly Grisham was a 16-year-old from Rochester, New York. He was the second oldest son and an excellent athlete. On Saturday, February 12th, 2009, his hockey team won their championship. To celebrate, his mother planned a party for that evening. While she was out shopping, Dominique got a call. He then left his house. He was never seen again. The reason I want to also include Brian Sullivan, another disappearance covered from Rochester, is that... Just within the past month, I went back and checked, it was December 2nd, so not quite a month ago, that remains were found in Rochester. However, there is a huge uh, asterisk for this, that the remains were found in the location of a former cemetery. Now, the contractor was out there doing something, digging around and came across some remains, and on that site is where a cemetery used to be. There is uh, no information. You should know that even during the course of recording this, I went back and checked to see, is there any, even any up-to-date information? There's been no information on this since that day, December 2nd, December 3rd, so all, you know, four weeks ago. So, I'm going to tell you, Uh, that although there was a hubbub at the time, it certainly caught my attention when it happened. I do follow uh, Dominique's mother's Facebook account, and she acknowledged it. She knew about it. Given the circumstances and given that this is uh, where a, a cemetery used to be, I'm inclined to believe that these remains are just of... Someone whose remains were not taken away when the cemetery was moved. This is common. What I don't know is how old was the cemetery? When did it get moved? How long ago? We have to remember this is New York. And there have been people living in New York even while in the, in the state of New York, not the state but the land of New York, well before the United States was ever established. So we have to think about that. In fact, that came up uh, earlier this year with remains that were found, I think, in New Hampshire, and people were thinking that it was maybe Mara Murray. And then when they started doing the DNA or carbon dating and they figured out this remains from some guy from, I don't know, years – I think the 19th century or 18th century or something like that, way long time ago. This could be the situation here as well. This could be a cemetery that takes us back to the Revolutionary War for all we know, and then at some point there's development. we got to move these people, and there might have been somebody buried there. There was no headstone or anything, and nobody knew, and they moved everybody else, missed this person. This is how these things happen. I, I don't know what to think. I, I I don't know whether I'm supposed to say, well, I hope it is Dominique. Am I supposed to say that? Am I supposed to say that I hope it's Brian? I, I really don't know where to go on that. All I can tell you is my experience tells me after five plus years is that I'm guessing the remains found were not from somebody who is missing, but somebody who died and was buried there and then did not get taken away when the cemetery was moved. That is where I stand. Right now, as I record this on December 28th, but what do I like to say? As facts change, theories change. Now, if they determine that it's not that, that it's somebody very, very recently and it was buried, the remains were buried there recently, and then, of course, everything changes. But at this point, I'm just going to say the remains of a, a deceased person uh, who was in that cemetery did not get moved. Next disappearance, Billy Silvestro. and in fact, I have to say I believe this is the first time Billy's disappearance has been, been included in an update episode. Pretty, pretty sure. William Francis the IV, Billy to those who loved him most, was a 28-year-old from Hamilton, Ohio. He loved tattoos and talking about God. On February 7th, 2011, he got a ride to a friend's home, one he hadn't seen in quite a while. The friend claims they partied, then he went to bed. When he woke up, Billy was gone. He was never seen again. The update is not long after the last update episode came out at the end of August of 2021. There was a search done in Ross Township, which is near... Hamilton, Ohio, and I'm just going to read you a story uh, published at the time, and this comes from, where is this from? This is from abc6onyourside.com. This came out, this article was published on September 28th of 2021, so three months ago. A tip in a decade-old missing persons case led to the search of a barn off Hine Road in Ross Township. But that tip came up empty in finding any remains of 28-year-old Billy Silvestro, who disappeared in February of 2011. The tipster claimed Silvestro's remains were inside the barn, and police did confirm there are signs the barn floor had been dug up before. Uh, Silvestro's mom said the hope for closure a tip like this brings is nothing compared to the disappointment of another piece of information that falls short. It just don't get no easier pain like this. There's no grieving. You are just stuck, said Debbie Estes, DeSylvestro's mother, and Debbie was the guest for the Unfound episode. Estes is stuck somewhere between hope and grief. She still has no answers after her son vanished ten and a half years ago. On Tuesday, she prepared to grieve as authorities dug eight feet deep in the barn for Silvestro's remains. It's a horrible way to live to not know where your kid is, said Estes. The tip came from a squatter that was staying in the barn. The original owner of the property has passed away. The tipster claimed that three other squatters pointed a gun at him and tried to remove a body a body he believes to be De Silvestro's. Apparently there was a 24-hour gap from when they called us and when this actually took place. There was a lot of time to obviously cover things up, remove property, evidence, and whatever it is, said Ross Township Police Chief Bert Roberts. Authorities did not find any remains on Tuesday, but they did find shell casings and live rounds. In addition, cadaver dogs hit in several spots. Substantial part. In addition, Calver dogs hit in several spots, substantiating part of his story. You can't see where the digging was taking place, and there are tires and dressers and debris over that digging area, said Roberts. Authorities said they can't rule out the possibility that a body may have been moved from the barn. All four squatters have been arrested on other charges. For now, Estes remains stuck in her pain. It's another dead-end lead that only brings her, move, brings her more suffering. Remarkably, she, she says she'll keep fighting the fight because a mother's love for her son can never be killed. I've never lost hope. It's all I have, said Estes. There's a $5,000 reward for any information on where DeFa Sylvester could be or what happened to him. Authorities said the person who gave the information to police had no reason to lie and nothing to gain. Also, that tipster was able to give an accurate description of what DeFa Sylvester was wearing the day he went missing. So, And there have been other articles written Uh, about this at the time, and they are all, um, as you would probably guess, very similar. Having read all that, I'm going to tell you I don't believe any of it. Uh, Just a little, once again, um, maybe I'm just cynical after five-plus years of doing Unfound. Maybe it's uh, cynical after 235 disappearances. It's just a story that's just a little too quaint. A little too perfect. What are the odds that he, you know, these squatters are there? Of course, we have to remember this disappearance is ten years old, and then all of a sudden they are there for these years, and um, suddenly they realize that there's a body there, and they're squatting there, and then suddenly people who have a reason to make it all, uh, Billy's remove remains, happen to show up and move them twenty four hours before the police get there. I have to, I have to admit, I, I doubt all of it. I would not put uh, an investment of $1 in it. seems to me, uh, granted, a lot more experience now than when I had his mother, uh, Billy's mother, on the program. In retrospect, it seems to me that Billy's disappearance is much like Noah Davis's who, as we know, remains were found eventually, even though there was all sorts of rumors that he was murdered. I do not believe that he was murdered. I didn't, even when I covered the disappearance, despite all the rumors being out there, I think I ended up being proven right on that. With Billy, it's kind of the same thing. I, of course, hope that he's still alive. The odds of that probably are Powerball odds. But... I'm certainly not going to believe that he was murdered simply because of this story, what these squatters were saying living on this property. Who knows what was going on with those people? Who knows? This seems to me to be a situation where it's perfectly believable that Billy was over at this friend's house and they were getting high. And it did happen that the friend went to bed and Billy... Who knows what was going through his mind? Was he hallucinating? Did he have a panic attack, some sort of mania, whatever? And he took off and overdosed somewhere in the woods, and he just hasn't been found yet. This is common. Um, Just as if you – even though we haven't covered the disappearance, we didn't. We almost did. Uh, The the disappearance of David Koenig, uh, the, the mystery of the missing fighter, maybe you've seen that. His disappearance, Um, his family has been all over Facebook, other social media publicizing his disappearance, and his remains were just found within the last few days by accident. And I think his family was convinced that he had been murdered. He wasn't, and he was found not too far away from where he was last seen in the woods, and he was going through some things that sounds very similar to Billy's disappearance. There are no facts to dispute the idea that Billy was murdered, but I'm certainly not going to believe that because of what these squatters were saying. So that was a few months ago. It seems there's no any inf- there's no information out there since this um, since this story in September, and I, I have to think that it's much ado about nothing. Next, Zoe Campos. Zoe Gabrielle Campos was an 18-year-old from Lubbock, Texas. She was close to her family and loved to work on cars. On the night of November 17, 2013, Zoe was at home with her sister and a friend. After they went to bed, Zoe seemingly left to meet a guy who was introduced to her earlier that day. She was never seen again. The update is that this trial in Texas has still not happened. Somehow, uh, the Steve Panky trial, which I'm going to get to eventually, uh, has been done, and still there's nothing regarding Carlos Rodriguez with uh, Zoe Campus' obvious murder. Why that is, I don't know. Will this be a situation like Dennis Bowman, who pled guilty? Could be. Maybe that's what it's eventually going to get to. Maybe... Carlos's lawyers are going to hold out to the very final second the day before the trial and take a plea. Just don't know. That wouldn't surprise me. This is another situation though where I would like to hear a little bit more about all of the details. You should know it seems That, uh, as I've stated in other updates about this, because this trial was supposed to take place in 2020, and of course we know what happened there with COVID, but um, Carlos plans to say that it was self-defense. Seems a bit laughable, I don't know, but remember his original story is that Zoe went out, uh, left in her car, and never came back. We now know that's a lie, and now he's claiming it was self-defense, they were doing drugs— Getting high, and she tried to – I don't know, with a knife or something, and he had to retaliate. Of course, this then does not explain why he buried her in the backyard. We know what happened. Probably for me, what I'm still interested in knowing is when police went and searched the house originally back in 2013, how they missed that slab of concrete or cement in the backyard. How did they miss that? i That's what I want to know. We know what Carlos Rodriguez did. I realize that the judicial system has to follow the path, we, but we know. We, the public, know. Uh, I'm much more interested in, in that. How do police miss something like that? What I would say if, is if that police department there in Lubbock can miss that concrete slab, then they can miss anything. Then Any police department anywhere can miss anything. I want to hear more about that. And if a trial is going to happen, I also want to hear more about, and maybe this will help us all understand, how is it that uh, an 18-year-old, Kamita, I think Carlos maybe was in his early 20s, how can these two who never knew each other until that day, Carlos Rodriguez, to my knowledge, uh, has no other murders on his record or rumored to have murdered anybody before Zoe, how does this happen? Two people get together, never met before. Carlos. Carlos. Maybe he does have a juvenile record. Maybe he was violent. It's been. Maybe we just don't know about it. Maybe that information is out there and I've missed it. How does this happen, though? You meet a girl, she goes over to your house, and then you kill her. It's. One of those points about human nature. I don't know if we're going to, uh, uh, we're ever going to understand it, but I would certainly like to hear about it in a trial setting. But we may not get that chance if he pleads guilty to the charges. We'll just have to see. The next update: Tom Brown, Thomas Kelly Brown was an 18-year-old from Canadian Texas. He was president of his class and loved acting and public speaking. On the night of November 23rd, 2016, Thomas was on his way home after hanging out with friends. He stopped to get gas in his Dodge Durango. He was never seen again. In October, coincidentally, right around the time that I was going to or coming from Colorado, Phil Klein and company held this had this presentation, this event in Canadian where the public could show up, and he was going to present his evidence to show why a grand jury should be convened. Why? Because he believes there are enough facts to prove prove that Tom was murdered. I don't think uh, this presentation went very well. Granted, I'm not totally unbiased, but I don't think it went very well. I think it had unintended consequences. I don't think anybody watched it who was like maybe on the fence and then afterwards said, oh, yeah, I I do think that Tom was murdered. I don't think anybody came away thinking that. It, It seemed to me, and I did watch part of it. I did not watch all of it. The part that I stopped at was when I started viewing Phil Klein, much like I view Steve Panky. And what I mean by that is, being that I'm now so familiar with the murder of Janelle Matthews, I'm, I'm as familiar with that case as any disappearance we've covered on Unfound because of how I've been involved with it. Well, Steve... In his interview with me, and his interview with other people over the years, tried to make the point, or he didn't try to, he did. He made the point that he believed that the Greeley Police Department always knew where Janelle Matthews was buried. He stated that in the interview that I did with him, the interview that played in his trial back in October, it was played in court, I was there, they let it play all three plus hours, and he said that, ...in the interview. And we're going to be getting to... Janelle's going to get her own update here in a bit. Well, I started thinking about that... ...when I started hearing uh, Phil talk about... ...how Pine Gregory was allegedly out there... ...on the day of the search... ...and that Pine wouldn't allow Phil or Phil's people... ...to go down into this area... ...where coincidentally, eventually... Tom Brown's remains were found in early 2019. And so Phil is essentially saying that there were people in the Hemphill County Sheriff's Office that always knew where the remains were but were keeping people from finding them. As soon as he was trying to make that point in that presentation, I thought of Steve Pankey because Steve Pankey says the same thing as I just explained. Both Phil and Steve were both trying to take the make the argument that a police department knew where a missing person's remains were and for some reason didn't want to report it, didn't want to go out there and dig, didn't want to go out there and move the investigation forward for whatever reason. Both Phil and Steve made the same argument. Of course, we know that Steve Pankey was just on trial for murder, hung jury. I'll get to that. So when you hear Phil talk about that, remember, there was an accused murder. I don't know if Steve Pankey killed Janelle Matthews or not. Differing opinions on that. But just remember, Phil is trying to make the same argument that an accused murderer was making. And so that when that happened, I said, you know, I can't I can't watch this anymore. I'm not saying that Phil knew what he was doing. He knows anything about Steve Pankey. He probably doesn't. But when I saw that correlation, similar words coming out – heard the similar words coming coming out of both men's mouths, that's when I had to stop watching this presentation. I was watching it recorded. I did not watch it live, but I watched it, a recording of it, a replay of it, and when it got to around that part, I just said, I'm out of here. So… The reason this is going on, and you should know, the day before maybe this presentation by Phil Klein was done, the Texas Attorney General's office issued a report. And I guess it was somewhat accusatory. And it had everything to do with Tom's phone. In their investigation, talking to people who knew Tom best, friends – They said that Toms and an iPhone and this case that he had, it was a special kind of case, were always together. It was a case where the case was a battery in and of itself. I'm I'm an Android person. I just don't know some of these things. And because of that, uh, the phone and this case were never separated, always together. That is what people told the investigators from the Texas Attorney General's office. The problem, and this is from that report, is that we all now know that in that search that was done in 2018, Tom's phone – or 2017 – Tom's phone was found by itself without the case. And you'll remember it was found within five minutes of the search starting. And I was there when I went to Canadian Texas in 2019. I went to the spot where it was found. To add on to that, going back to the meeting that was done in 2019 in August of 2019 that was unethically recorded by Sheriff Lewis, Sheriff at the time Lewis, we know that the Texas Gen- Attorney General's Office – why do I have such a ton- hard time saying that? Texas Attorney General's Office stated that pretty much they believed that the phone was planted because of its condition and everything else. Where it was, how that grass had been mowed, how it rained, it snowed, and everything else, and it just looked a little too pristine to them. But who ended up having that case that was allegedly never separated from the phone? Penny did. So how did the phone and the case get separated when everybody who knew Tom well said the phone and the case were never separated? don't know and what we're unsure of is do the two young people who were with uh tom that night Caleb and christian do they remember tom having his phone with the case that night that's still a little unclear to me so if the phone and the case are never separated but the phone was found by itself without the case how did penny end up with the case now if she's saying that Well, he went out that night without it. I I, I don't know if there's anything to dispute that. But it does fly in the face of what everybody else thought about how Tom handles his phone business. And then you add in that the phone was in really, really good condition when it was found, even though it had been out in the elements for at least a couple months. And how convenient was it that a search started and the the phone was found within five minutes? Of course, Phil has his reasoning for all of that. I would urge you to to go find that presentation and watch it for yourself. But I continue to believe that the meeting that was done in August 2019 is going to be the definitive decision regarding Tom's death. I'm not sure we're ever going to know. And that happens in disappearances. Esther Westenbarger, how did she end up in that retention pond? Drinking and driving, heart attack, fell asleep with the will. We're never going to know. Chris Turner's remains were found in the desert outside Las Vegas. Was he murdered? Suicide? Something? I'm not sure we're ever going to know, even though there's a belief that he was murdered. His mother certainly believes that. This often happens in disappearances. When remains aren't found for a year and a half. Not quite a year and a half. Was it two and a half years? Two and a half years. Yeah, 2016 to 2019. A little over two years that the remains weren't found. These things are common. It's just kind of a spotlight on it. It's kind of getting everybody's attention. Why? Because Tom Brown's disappearance is now so well known. But what I want all of you to realize is... Is that it is very common when people go missing and their remains are found not within the next week, but a year down the road, five, 10, 20 years down the road? Most of the time, a cause of death can never be proven, even if you have reason to believe that a person was murdered. Now, what was the difference in Janelle Matthews's case? Well, I'll get to that in that update. But that's all I'm going to say about Tom Brown's disappearance for this update, episode number 10. Next, Kimberly Raymer. Kimberly Lauren Raymer was a 17-year-old from Op, Alabama. She was a popular girl and was getting ready for her senior year of high school. On August 15th, 1997, she went to her boyfriend's house but made sure to be home by 11.30, her curfew. After 36 hours of not seeing her, Kimberly's father discovered her bedroom had been ransacked. She was never seen again. If you remember, this past summer there was a grand jury convened, kind of seemingly out of nowhere. I I don't know if Kimberly's family saw that coming or not. It's making – being that we just spoke about a grand jury in, in Tom Brown's disappearance, we seem to be talking about that a lot. To my knowledge, I've been able to look into this, Google it, do whatever. I have not seen any results of this. And if you want to draw a comparison back to Tom Brown's case, there is surely more proof that Kimberly was murdered than Tom was murdered. I'm not saying Tom wasn't murdered. But there's surely more proof that Kimberly was. Why, given the condition of her bedroom when her father Uh, Came home. So it just doesn't seem at this point, given that uh, grand jury from this past summer, that anything has come from it. Of course, grand jury testimony I think, is going to be sealed. I don't know if we'll ever know what was covered. I don't know if her family even knows. But as of right now, at the end of 2021, it just doesn't seem like there has been any movement uh, since this past summer. Next disappearance, Alyssa Turney. This is going to be a, a, a familiar statement regarding this one. Uh, it'll seem like some of the others that I am, inclu- uh, I am including in this update episode. Alyssa Marie Turney was a 17-year-old from Phoenix, Arizona. She was the studious type, but also had a rebellious, but also had rebellious tendencies, and she had a boyfriend. On May 17, 2001, she was taken out of school early by her stepfather. He took her to lunch, then home. Then he went out to run some errands. When he came back to the house, Alyssa was gone. She was never seen again. Um, Michael Turney has been charged with Alyssa's murder. I have not heard one word about when that's going to go to trial. I know that Alyssa's sister <clears throat> keeps everybody updated, but and I try to stay updated as well. I don't know if this trial is going to happen in 2022 or not. From what I can tell, it seems like a very, very, very circumstantial case. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that Michael did something to her. But according to what I know about all the circumstances, I don't know how they would prove that in court. It may just be that the jury just decides, yeah, he did it. Just because they don't have any other choice, it's always possible. But I have to admit, even going back to when Michael was charged, I was surprised. And I continue to be surprised. So it just doesn't seem there's much movement. If there is a court date or something, that's news to me. But I guess if there's going to be a trial – you'd think it's going to happen in 2022 next update Megan Lancaster Megan Nicole Lancaster was a 25 year old from Portsmouth Ohio she was a mother and high school athlete on April 3rd 2013 Megan had gone shopping with her mother but then went off by herself a little later she called to say she'd be home shortly Megan never arrived. Her car was found a couple days later. She was never seen again. Um, we have a very sad update regarding her case, and then we just have a regular kind of update. The first sad update is that the guest for that episode, Katie Lancaster, um, Megan's sister-in-law. So Katie was married to Megan's brother, Katie died a couple months ago. I think she is the fifth unfound guest to pass away. Um, We would include in there Jessica Curtis, Tyler Stice's sister, Kimberly Norwood's mother, uh, Jennifer Wilkerson's mother, Vicky, Donna Jean Capp, Dorian Myers' sister. And now we have... Katie Lancaster. Uh, Cause of death. I don't know if I really want to get into that, but Katie is not with us. Uh, My understanding is that although I I spoke to Katie once in a while, but it had been a little while before uh, since I'd spoken to her before she died. I understand she was going through a lot of hard things in her own personal life with her marriage. And uh, it was just a complete, complete shock when I found out about it, because I believe that Katie was still in her 30s. So, i um, not sure who's going to take up the mantle, who's going to now take over the reins, keeping Megan's uh, disappearance out there, make sure people don't forget about it. Uh, Katie did a lot. She was quoted in all the articles. Any article you're going to find regarding Megan's disappearance, Katie is quoted in it. You know, uh, if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll hear about all the things that she has had done, getting in trouble, confronting the chief of police in, in Portsmouth, Ohio, getting put in jail for doing so. Uh, And she's no longer with us, and she leaves uh, behind uh, several children. It's very sad. On top of that, uh, so the next bit of news is then not long after that, maybe a month later, Mike Moran died. He was a prominent topic in the interview that I did with Katie for Megan's disappearance a few years ago. Mike, uh, sometime last year, had been charged with a, a variety of crimes, none of them having to do with Megan's disappearance, but sex trafficking and other uh, charges. And he has died. Uh, I think anybody who ever saw a recent picture of him knew uh, could tell that he was not in the picture of health. He was an older guy anyway, but uh, he just did not look good at all. Didn't seem to have taken care of himself over the years. And he was in, uh, in custody w- awaiting trial when he died uh, from a variety of ailments that they listed, all sort of things you would think. I uh, Maybe heart problems, lung problems, uh, maybe he had diabetes, all the, these types of things that we know are very difficult. And uh, so he has now passed away just not sure what's going to happen with his trial. I once again it's like what I talked about in for example Dennis Bowman pleading guilty. With these trials you hope to learn something that you don't know that might help you with that disappearance. Who knows what Mike would have said or what his attorney would have said or some witness would have said that might have given given us a better idea of what could have happened to Megan. Now, you should know, I'm not inclined to believe that Mike Moran had anything to do with Megan's disappearance, but you never know. Never know what could come out in a trowel that might uh, cause us to look at Megan's disappearance, maybe even in a different light. We're not going to be able to do that now. Sometimes when... Defendants die before their trial date. Uh, The prosecutor will come forward and show the case that he or she was going to present. That has not been done yet. So maybe it's because there's other people that still have yet to go on trial. They may use that evidence against somebody else, or they just not feel like doing it. I don't know. But so Katie Lancaster passed away and more recently Mike Moran passed away. And that is the update for Megan Lancaster's disappearance. Next update, I think this is a fir- this is a first Barbara Frame. Barbara Sue Frame was a 38-year-old from Zanesville, Ohio. She was the mother of 3 and worked for the subsidiary of a car manufacturer. On January 30th, 1985, at approximately 5 p.m., her ex-husband came over to tell Barbara their divorce lawyer needed to see her. Barbara left her house for this appointment. She was never seen again. Now, just from reading that, I think you could tell the direction that that discussion – how that interview went when Barbara's daughter appeared on the program. Very common scenario. Now, the reason there is an update is because very recently, within the last three weeks here in December of 2021, there was some demolition being done on a uh, a building or a house in Zanesville. I I looked on a map. It was about a little over two miles away from where Barbara was living at the time. Remains were found as they demolished this house and these remains were in the ground interestingly it looks like this person it is a human they they even talked about how there was a femur bone something like that to really say it's certainly human the remains had a had an arrow in them so it looked like this person had been shot with an arrow and then died and so the, the, but the arrow continued to be in the body. So as the body decomposed, the the arrow was still amongst the bones. And uh, this, like I said, it was about three weeks ago, maybe even longer than that ago. And there has been no updates since then. So what do I think? Think about ba- I think about Mara Murray disappearance of those remains being found kind of far from where she was last seen but in the state of New Hampshire and there was a possibility that those remains might be her but I really never thought that and it ended up being remains from some somebody somebody who died long 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 time ago and so when I think about Ohio I mean I mean really could Could the house have been built um, where uh, there was some Native American land and there was a fight or a war going back to like the 1750s or something? I don't know. And that person died right there and then they built a house on top of it and didn't even know that the remains were in the ground. It's possible. It's certainly possible. The issue I have is that who shoots somebody with an arrow to try to kill him? unless it is going way back to like the 1700s? So I don't know. I, I did look up and see where uh, Barbara's ex-husband was, was living at the time. It was not the building he was living in, and he was also about two miles from this building. I looked up to see if there are any any other missing people from Zanesville, and there are. There are at least a couple, so maybe it's one of them. As I remember it, the, one of the women – this woman disappeared in like 1982. She was an older woman. Yes, she disappeared three years before Barbara did, but she was much older than Barbara. And then there was a young man who disappeared – Much more recently, but he is involved in drugs, and who knows what might happen there. Maybe it's one of those two people and not Barbara. But it's getting attention. It's been in the news, but there have been no updates since the original story came out. And I'm hoping we do get an update, and if we do, I'll let all of you know. But this is... I think Barbara, this is the first time Barbara's disappearance has been mentioned on an update episode, and uh, I'm, I'm happy about that. Next update Austin Pivo. Austin Forced Pivo was a 23 year old from Fort Hall, Idaho. He was a firefighter and competitive Native American dancer. On the morning of February 3rd, 2018, his mother dropped Austin off at his job. However, he soon discovered work was canceled for that day. Austin then made a phone call and left. He was never seen again. We now know that the last part of that paragraph is untrue um, regarding him discovering that work was canceled that day and him making a phone call. Those things never happened. Instead, what happened is he showed up there and uh, a fight broke out and three men murdered him. And the update is everybody has been charged. They're all going to jail for a very long time. Why Idaho has been able to make these things happen so quickly in contrast to Texas and other states who are – like, for example, Carlos Rodriguez with Zoe Campos and why they still haven't brought it, uh, brought it to trial, I don't know. But all of the men responsible for Austin Piva's murder have been charged. They're in jail. And that is uh, the news. With Austin Pevo's disappearance, I think it just shows how quickly things can go badly. I have no information. Uh, his mother, Susan, has never said that he had any, had any beef with any of these guys ever before. But something got out of hand when he showed up the day, that day. Could it have been due to drugs? Certainly. But uh, the defense tried to argue that it was that it was self defense. That's why they killed Austin. The self defense uh, def- uh, defense is always a problem, though, when you can show then that the three men disposed of Austin's remains and tried to hide it. So that was probably a problem, and that's why those men were found guilty and are all going away for a long time. But for any of the disappearances, the maybe we could say might be like Austin's, this just shows you how quickly things can just get so out of hand. In fact, just before I started recording uh, this portion of the update episode, I was watching one of my favorite channels on YouTube, Active Self-Protection, where John Korea diagrams, surveillance video, security video of uh, fights and burglaries and self-defense situations. And uh, the one today was of a bunch of guys who were family just just hanging out at some bar. I think it was in Puerto Rico. And out of nowhere, the one guy hits his cousin in the face with a beer bottle, just out of nowhere, on video. And this led to people drawing guns. And before it was all done, Two men were dead. Just as quick as that. Like from the time that the bottle hit that guy's face to two guys lying on the ground, shot, and in the process of dying was like four seconds or something. It's like an incredibly fast amount of time. It's how quickly it can go bad. And so I ask all of you to remember that when we think about disappearances, where it's a possibility that that could happen. We start thinking, wow, there just wasn't enough time. It very well may be that there was plenty of time. And Austin Peva shows, even amongst men who know each other or work together, one of them has a beef, something gets out of hand, somebody's manhood is challenged, who knows what really did happen. Don't be surprised if somebody ends up dead. Next, Jonathan Estes. Jonathan Paul Estes was a 35-year-old father of two from Bogue, Mississippi. He worked in construction and was active in his church. On June 2nd, 2018, Jonathan was at home and spoke to his best friend. Jonathan then said he was going outside to see why the police were going up and down his road. He was never seen again. The update for this is that there's still no trial regarding his ex-wife and her alleged theft of that piece of machinery, this tractor, bulldozer, whatever it was, that <clears throat> came up in the interview that I did with Jonathan, Jonathan's sister way back in 2019, that trial's not happened yet either. So, what's going on in Mississippi? Why, Once again, why can Idaho get, get the murder of three men done and... This is still going on in Mississippi and Texas and everywhere else. I don't know. But uh, his ex-wife, and once again, it has nothing to do with his disappearance. It has to do with alleged theft. It seems like this should have been pled out a long time ago. Hasn't been. And so her trial is still up in the air. Next update, Molly Miller and Colt Haynes. Molly Miller and Colt Haynes were respectively 17 and 21-year-olds from Wilson, Oklahoma. They had only known each other a week but might have been headed toward a relationship. On the evening of July seventh, 2013, Molly and Colt were passengers in a car that got involved in a police chase. The vehicle got ditched and the driver made it back to his house the next morning while Molly and Colt seemingly got lost, trying to call friends to pick them up. They were never seen again. The update for this is that... It's a hubbub. Is that what I want to call it? Maybe a month ago. That there could be some new searches in the area where that the car was ditched. My understanding is that there was an uh, a piece of property very close to where the car was that has never been searched they couldn't uh, did not get a warrant for it at the time the person who owned it at the time would not allow them on the property and then now but since then since 2013 the property has changed hands and seemingly they believed that the the Law enforcement had gotten permission to search the property, but now the owner has changed his mind. And so uh, I guess warrants are are going to have, have to be gotten. everything's now going to be have to it's going to have to be done very, very officially. How far is this property away from where the car was found, where it was ditched? Six hundred feet. So it sounds promising. It does. I will tell you, though, that there's still many things about this disappearance that don't make sense to me. And it's probably neither the time nor place in an update episode to talk about all of it. But it's still very difficult for me to understand how... Molly and Colt couldn't find their way out of there. It's not like they were dumped in the big, in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Jungle, uh, a rainforest around, I should say, the Amazon is a river. The rainforest around the Amazon River in South America. They weren't dumped there. They weren't dumped out in, in Alaska, out in the tundra somewhere. They were just not far. All, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, Being that they rode in there on a car, why did they not just – and it was grass and dirt and everything else. Why did they not just follow the tire tracks back the way they came? They had phones that, as we know, lasted until the next morning. Just turn your phone on, put the phone, shine it down on the ground, and just start walking following the tracks. You're bound to get somewhere very positive, not to mention it's dark. You maybe see some house lights somewhere. These are all things that still – Don't make a lot of sense to me. I got to tell you. I've never been there. But – and then on top of that, the next morning they're talking on the phones, and and they say they're lost. But somehow, if we are to believe it, that guy that was with them, Nip, and whoever else went out there and I guess found them, no problem. It's a little hard to understand, and I still tend to believe that – The sequence of events from the time the car got ditched until this disappearance started and their phones died or whatever happened to them, I still don't think that is all correct. There's just something about it that just does not make any sense. We're missing something. Something has been switched around. We're putting the cart before the horse or something like that, some analogy like that. I continue to think about that. Um, maybe it wasn't so obvious to me at the time that we covered the disappearance, but since then, more time to think about it. Just, just – it just doesn't sound – there just seemed to have been too many ways that Colt and Molly could have found their way out of there and didn't. So I start thinking about why. So that's the update. Maybe we'll have, be having another search here on uh, that property in 2022. Next update, or maybe a, a lack of one, Kamisha Hollis. Kamisha Nicole Hollis was a 34-year-old mother of three from Omaha, Nebraska. She loved going to the gym and worked two jobs. On April 2nd, 2018, Kamisha didn't call her mother like she usually did, and she didn't show up for work. A few days later, Kamisha's car was found at a motel a few miles from her home. She was never seen again. This is another one that we're due for a trial sometime, but we haven't gotten it yet. Uh, the father of Kamisha's children surely did something to her. There's video of him, and if you remember going back to that episode, he was essentially stalking her. He had to know where she was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even keeping a, a, a video When she was at work, she had to have her phone on with a video on her so he could watch her. Crazy, crazy stuff. But we're still waiting uh, for a trial. He has been charged with Kamisha's murder. But we also have to remember Kamisha herself has not been found yet. Despite this guy um, being charged. I have to admit, uh, going way back, being that this – Theme of trials that haven't started yet, I have to tell you that I really believed in 2021 that we would have more trials than we did. And you may say, well, it's because of COVID. Well, is it? Idaho found a way to – well, one of them, One of those guys pled guilty. So they had – Idaho had two murder trials regarding Austin pivo. We had the trial for Steve Pankey in Colorado, which I'm slowly going to getting toward, getting close to that in this update episode. Other trials have occurred for, for example, those officers uh, in Minnesota, all all over the place. All these trials are happening, but for some reason, and we know Dennis Bowman, looks like his was going to go to trial until he pled guilty. So what is going on with this? With Jonathan Estes, Kamisha Hollis, in the next this uh, next update, I'm going to do. I don't know, uh, uh, Zoe Campus's uh, murder. That's another one we've already talked about. What is it? Why is this taking so long? It cannot be COVID. I don't want to hear that. Other states are finding ways to do it. Let's get this moving, people. Next update. Similar to Camisha's, Tyler North. Tyler North was a 27-year-old from Harlan County, Kentucky. He was the father of two and loved hunting and fishing. On the evening of Sunday, June 24th, 2018, Tyler left his sisters. He was allegedly headed home. However, Tyler turned into a local park instead. He was never seen again. Days later, his truck was found burned out, and his ex-wife and her boyfriend uh, have been charged with Tyler's murder. And they'd been charged a while ago, I think it's been a year, and still no trial. As I just stated two minutes ago, I don't know why why this is taking so long for some of these situations. Um, you should also know that, that I've heard that there are remains that were found in that area in Harlan County – Still no results from them either. We don't know if it was Tyler North. It could be totally somebody from another state. We don't know. But I really thought uh, there would be trials for uh, – in Kamisha Hollis's disappearance, Tyler North. Maybe it's this. Maybe, the, maybe prosecutors were thinking, well, if we charge these people, maybe they'll just give up where the, the remains are or give us time. We'll find where these these people are. And maybe that's the reason they're dragging their feet. It has nothing to do with COVID or anything else. It's suddenly maybe the prosecutors have gotten cold feet because there's no body. I'll allow all of you to think about that one. Next, we're finally to probably the, the biggest update, the longest update uh, for this episode, and that is Janelle Matthews. Janelle Matthews was a 12-year-old from Greeley, Colorado. She was in the chorus and had an older sister. On December 20th, 1984, Janelle was dropped off at her house after a concert. There was no one home. When her father arrived an hour later, Janelle wasn't there. She was never seen again. Her remains were found in July 2019, 35 years after her disappearance. Uh, unless you've really uh, – unless you're either new to the program to Unfound, and we certainly do, you're getting new listeners all the time, or you are an Unfound listener and have been under a rock, you know that since the last update – right actually right after the last update aired in August of 2021, that next week in September, I got an email from the Greeley uh, – the Greeley um, prosecutor's office asking uh, if they could talk to me. I, of course, said yes. I had a talk with uh, prosecutor uh, Michael Rourke and some other people were on the call, and from that call, they decided that they wanted to have me out to Greeley to testify in the, in the prosecution of Steve Pankey for the murder. Janelle Matthews, I'm not going to go through every step uh, in this update. Uh, But I got out there, um, and if you'd want to hear a more, much more detailed uh, of my – a little more – a longer detailed explanation of everything that went on out there. uh, I've talked about it in the live shows back at the time, and uh, in fact I did a live show from out there. But the update is that I went out there, sat up there for over three and a half hours as the entire interview played. I actually did not really talk that much on the stand. Prosecution asked me some questions about my background, about how I ended up interviewing Steve, and then the interview in its pretty much its entirety, 97%, 97% of it played and i had to sit up on the witness stand for the entire thing that was a unique experience and it went in from like went from late in the day thursday into friday the rest of the interview played after that the prosecution asked me a couple more questions the defense asked me a couple questions that were really no big deal in colorado the jury is allowed to ask questions and there was a question from the jury And I was done. And I have to tell you, that morning uh, on that Friday, I got up to go over there. The hotel was just across this park from the courthouse, went in there, must have started uh, about 20 till 9 a.m. And then I finished, and I was back in bed in my hotel room at 9.30. That's how quick that, that Friday morning portion was. It's not – I did it. I was nervous a little bit. It was certainly a unique experience. I tried to take it all in. In fact, after that Friday session was done and I knew that I was done, as I went outside, I kind of just stood there for a moment kind of looking around. There wasn't – was really nobody else around. It was a crisp Colorado day, Colorado morning. And it just kind of took it in just to make sure that um, it didn't escape me so I could remember uh, what I felt at the time. And then it was done. The next day, I flew back here to Florida. Now, if any of you have been following the Steve Pankey trial, you now know that eventually it was a hung jury. I can tell all of you that doesn't surprise me at all. I have gone back and forth regarding uh, my thoughts on Steve. I've talked to my assistants about Steve, in particular my assistant Sheree, regarding his guilt. And it was a tough case, and I can certainly see why it was a hung jury. And what I did was I did not read anything. I did not follow the trial at all. Until after I had already been on the stand. And then afterwards I went back and looked at the Greeley Tribune, reading the articles that were written at the time, before, in the days before my day on the stand. And it was very clear to me that the prosecution was having a tough time proving its case. The big problem, my opinion – I'm not a lawyer, but I play one with this microphone in front of my face. They never could put Steve on that street at that time. Couldn't do it. Never did it. In contrast, the defense, when it got to present its side, it showed that there was a guy's name is North Drake who lived in the neighborhood, not far away from the Matthews. And at the time... Police did look at him as being a possible suspect. They determined that on that evening that Norris Drake had left his home and did not come back to the next day. However, at the time, his mother and sister claimed, well, he didn't leave until well after um, Janelle would have been abducted from her house. Remember, there's a certain time frame in there where between uh, her being dropped off and her father coming home. It's about an hour. And the the alibi that the mother and sister of Norstrak gave is that yes, he he was still home at that time. Not I, what I would say the most solid alibis I've ever heard or alibi I've ever heard. But the de- defense did bring it up. And it helped that the police did actually entertain the idea of Norris Drake being responsible back in 1984. That certainly helped. Now, what drew their attention away from Norris to Steve? Maybe because Steve wouldn't shut up. Because as has been determined, there is no physical evidence, scientific evidence, nothing to connect Steve and Janelle Matthews. So that was a big problem for the defense, that they can never put Steve on that, on that street. He lived two miles away, which you may like, well, it's only two miles. Well, yeah. Well, a lot of people lived closer than that. <laughs> Hundreds, if not thousands of people lived closer than two miles to Janelle Matthews or you know, to the house. What rules them out? How would he have known that she was there and, and by herself? Very hard. I'm not saying he didn't do it. But I think to get a for-sure murder conviction, they needed that, and they didn't have it. Still, they were the ones who chose to bring their case forward, and I think that their case was based on all the lies Steve uh, told over the years, telling one person one thing, telling another person another. And you should know that he admitted when he went on the stand in the trial – That he admitted some of the things that he said to me in the interview I did with him were lies, which I'm not offended. I kind of of suspected that anyway. That doesn't make him guilty. I think in a different era in our judicial system, that might have been enough. To show that the the defendant is a liar might have been enough, maybe back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. But once— Science uh, became part of a trial more than just fingerprints, but actually DNA and blood types and, and all those things that are commonly brought up in murder trials. There's just a higher expectation. I think the jury has a higher expectation than just showing, oh, the guy's a liar. Well, that just doesn't do it these days. The other issue I think the prosecution had and the reason it ended up being hung jury is that I think it was uh, not good that Steve's wife, Angela, who I've spoken to. I've not spoken to her since the trial, but she and I did have some talks after I interviewed Steve until I went out to Greeley, Colorado over the course of that time, which is roughly two years. I did have some back and forth messenger conversations with her it didn't help that when she was on the stand during the trial she admitted that she did not even think didn't even entertain the idea that steve could have killed janelle until 1999 15 years later even though she admitted that he seemed to be obsessed with janelle's disappearance that a car caught on fire in their backyard, that he was burying something in the backyard, that he was telling lies about their trip. He was saying that it had already been planned, always been planned. She said it was a spur of the moment, on and on and on and on and on. Even though she knew all of that for 15 years, it never occurred to, her, occurred to her that he could have killed Janelle. Well, if she didn't think it for 15 years, then why should the jury think it? Because that's the evidence they were presented. On top of that, I'm sure the jury saw um, the non coincidence that she started thinking of that right around the time she wanted to divorce Steve. This hurts. These things hurt, uh, prosecution cases. So I'm not surprised at all. Now, what's interesting to me is that uh, just on Thanksgiving week, I interviewed John Lorden, and he interviewed me. I interviewed him more about – we talked about Steve Pankey, but we just talked about the true crime community, where we are in 2021 in general. And then I was on his program, and we talked specifically about the case, me going out there, my experience. And – he thought it was pretty much a slam dunk that Steve was going to be uh, convicted. I still have to say uh, over a month later since I did that – had that talk with John, I'm still a little stunned by that, a little stunned. Um, so I think the prosecution's going to try again. Uh, Steve is going to have a different lawyer this time. I don't know if that will mean anything, but the earliest uh, I've heard that they could even start the process again is May of 2022 because the new lawyer or lawyers need to go through everything that was presented at the first trial, and they would not be prepared until May. Do I think that I will be called again or asked again to go back out to Greeley? I doubt it. Of course, I was surprised. I mean, I have to be honest. I was surprised that I even got asked in the first place. I I have to tell you, when I did that interview with Steve in 2019, there was no way I could have anticipated two years later I'd be on the stand in Greeley, Colorado. No way. But it happened. So I could be wrong about this, too. Uh, The reason I say that, that I doubt it, is because... I now see why they wanted the interview because they wanted to show that Steve was a liar, and my interview with him did a very good job of doing that. The problem is it didn't work. So I think if they're going to use a different strategy or as a tactics strategy uh, the second time around, it may be that they don't need the interview to um, for whatever they're going to do. And thus, if they're not going to need the interview, then there's no reason for me to be there. We still don't know what the split was between the – for the jury. We don't know if it was 50-50, 75-25. Was there one holdout? We still don't know. I still don't know. My understanding is that the defense and the prosecution, of course, the judge know. They know. But I don't think the public knows. Is that common? Hard for me to say. It does seem to me that when there are hung juries that eventually the public does find out. But we have not found out this time, and I'm sure that will greatly affect if uh, the prosecution wants to bring charges again. Once the defense looks over the material and um, – I'm not sure anything is set in stone at this time, at all, regarding whether there's going to be a second trial or not. All I know is that Steve, since it's a hung jury, he's still back in jail, and um, he was found guilty of lying in the, over the course of an investigation. But I don't think anybody gives a dang about that. So. It may very well may be that he gets these new lawyers, they look over the material, and then the prosecution says, you know what? We're not ready to proceed, and that would mean that Steve would be out of jail. He'd be let out until the prosecution decides what it wants to do. So I think if it was 50-50, maybe the prosecution has to be thinking, why go through this again? But if there was only one holdout, they were all but one for conviction – then I guess it's worth it to try it again. I'm still not convinced Steve uh, Panky killed Janelle Matthews. I'm going to continue to to stick by that. But it was an experience. That, That whole month of October was just a crazy month. That and other things. Just a crazy, crazy, busy month. One of the most unique months of my life for sure. Next update, Ronald McNutt. Ronald Todd McNutt was a 44-year-old from Corning, California. He was the father of two and had many different jobs over his adult life. On May fourth, two 2004, Ronald dropped off his step-grandson at school. He was supposed to go to work after that. Ronald never arrived. He was never seen again. If you remember this disappearance uh, after a wildfire a fire swept through California back in... Around 2015, uh, a truck was exposed. Um, Firefighters went down there. They discovered it was Ronald's truck and the remains were in it. And still here in 2021, we still have no idea who the person in the truck is. It makes all the sense in the world that it's Ronald, but it's not been positively identified still. So if you were wondering about that, that is still way up in the air Why that is, I don't know. Maybe it's because of the fire that they couldn't get any good DNA, but would there be dental records or something? You would think that this would be resolved by now. It's not. And I know that his daughter, uh, Leslie, has been trying to get answers. Still, no answers. And she was on the program, I think, two years ago. So if you're wondering about that, because I – include ronald's disappearance every once in a while in these update episodes since uh we covered his disappearance uh that is something that is still up in the air it has to be one of the longest dna tests ever next vanessa sue Orrin. vanessa sue Oren was a 56 year old from labarge wyoming she was a mother and had lived in several states Sometime during March 2016, people who usually saw her around LaBarge stopped encountering her. Her boyfriend told people Vanessa got into a, into a truck with some men and left. She was never seen again. Remember uh, last update in August, uh, the uh, warrants had been served on this guy's property, this boyfriend's property. And during the course while they were on the property, he went somewhere and committed suicide. That was the update in August. Uh, Nothing, I've heard nothing since then. This is what I explained, I think, earlier in this update episode. Sometimes this, uh, how something can be so cold, a disappearance can be so cold for so long, then all of a sudden something's going on, you, you think that it's going to get solved, and then it goes cold again as quickly as anything. And this could be one of those situations where nothing is going on. We have to remember this disappearance was from 2016, and really since then not much had gone on. And then all of a sudden in the summer of 2021, his warrants are served. They're going to this guy's house. He's being asked to leave for the time being, and while they're searching, he uh, commits suicide. I think he shot himself. And so if he knew anything about Vanessa's disappearance, we're never going to know that now. But nothing since then. So if you were wondering, you might remember back to the former update episode and think, man, it sounded like something was going to happen there. Nothing has happened. No remains were found. Uh, So wherever Vanessa is, if her boyfriend did do something to her, it doesn't seem that she is on that property, which we have to admit, is a little shocking, given, given how much we know about remains being found on the property of murderers. Next update, Unique Harris. Unique Ra- Raquel Leona Harris was a 24-year-old from Washington, D.C. She was the mother of two and was getting ready to go to massage therapy school. On the night of October 9th, 2010, Unique put her children and cousin to bed. When the kids woke up the next morning, Unique was gone. She was never seen again. This is another one where we're waiting a trial, but I'll be a little lenient here because a lot of the stuff was just recent developments from this year. Uh, Unique's mother was on the program in November of 2020. And then just around this time last year, it seemed to me to be in December of last year, uh, a guy was charged with Unique's murder. To my knowledge, her remains have not been found, but he has been charged with his murder. And I think the update here would be that uh, the trial's not gone forward. And but we now know from a couple articles that Unique and this guy did know each other somehow. This is not some random encounter that she was at home and he just happened to stumble up to her door and something happened. Um. This was a situation where they had some sort of – I'm not saying they had a relationship. I don't know, but the two, uh, this guy and Unique, knew each other somehow, and that's the update. Next update, Jody Husentrout. Jody Sue Husentrout was a 27-year-old from Mason City, Iowa. She was a reporter and had dreams of hosting a national news show. In the early morning hours of June 27th, 1995, Jody left for work. However, she never arrived. Jody's possessions would later be found strewn across her apartment's parking lot. She was never seen again. Uh, the update for this is that this you should be listening to the Fine Jody podcast. They they continue to put out episodes. I'm going to say one a month. So there have been, I think, at least three if not four episodes since August. They continue to interview people who knew Jody at the time, who worked with her. Um, they've interviewed uh, – although it's been a while – they interviewed her downstairs neighbor who just happened to not be home that morning. When she disappeared, they interviewed uh, a woman who lived across the street at the time. And I think the, uh, the podcast is going to continue, although I don't think there's been an episode out. An episode has come out maybe since the beginning of this month. But you should be uh, listening to it. You know that I don't listen to much or watch much other true crime stuff, but this is one that I do. I'm a subscriber to it, and I listen to it on Spotify. And I would surely recommend it to anybody. I think there's like 27 episodes or some, some crazy number like that now. And they are all very high quality. So if you want to know as much as you can about Jody's disappearance, in addition, of course, to the coverage that Unfound has done, please go find that podcast. Next update, uh, if you're following along at home, going through how – as, as you know, I started at the beginning of Unfound's existence, and I'm slowly working my way up to the present. And then if you've been following along, looking at where we are in the timeline of Unfound's existence and these disappearances, you had to know that this was c- coming soon, and that is Brian Schaefer. Brian Randall Schaefer was a 27-year-old from Columbus, Ohio. He was in medical school and his mother died not long before he went missing. At around 2 a.m. April 1st, 2006, Brian's friends prepared to leave a bar they had visited together. They called him, but Brian never responded. He was never seen again. Now the update for this is something that just happened uh, a month ago and it involves yours truly. And I will explain how that all went down. As I say about any disappearance, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on Jody truth's disappearance. I'm not an expert on Tom Brown's disappearance or Brian Shaver's, Toby Anderson's, which is going to be the next update, anybody's. You can't be an expert on any one particular disappearance when you cover them weekly like I do. What you end up gathering is a wealth of information about disappearances in general, and that's the information I – have presented to students so far at in, in Louisiana and here in Florida. So you have to remember that. But what I do also do behind the scenes as people, for people who are experts on a particular disappearance, and especially if they've been on the program, I do help them behind the scenes, whether it's a family member or some member or somebody else. May not tell you about it because these conversations are confidential. But that does happen and it happens quite a bit. Well, I think I established when Kelly Bruce was on the program back in May of 2021 that Kelly and I had been talking for quite a while and finally we decided, hey, it's time for her to be on the program, and of course she has her own program. But since then she and I have kept in touch. And she continues to work on Brian's disappearance as hard as anybody in the private sector who isn't in law enforcement. Well, what happened? And the reason I remember the date is because it was the next day. It was November 30th that I ended up having this whatever it was. It wasn't a panic attack, but it was some sort of uh, optical migraine or whatever else that sent my brain in a frenzy for like a half hour. If you watch the live show, you know what I'm talking about. But the day before, it was a Monday, November 29th, I was in bed because I go to bed late. I get up late. And I get a message from Kelly, and this video thing kind of comes out of nowhere. And I'm hoping you've watched the video. If you haven't, go to the uh, Unfound Podcast channel on YouTube to watch it, this presentation that I did, pretty much off the top of my head. And what it had to do with was the video of Brian standing outside the Ugly Tuna where he's standing with those two young women. And... It had to also do with the coverage that was done on the, – the, the TV show finally came out. The TV program that covered Brian's case finally came out. That's something that Kelly and I talked about back in May when she was on the program. She had already done the interview with them. That's how long it takes to bring something to the TV so everybody can watch it. Well, in that program, in that show – They showed that video, but it was not what I would call the cropped version that everybody has seen over the years. Usually, when you're watching that security video of him standing there, you can barely just see Brian's face, maybe his shoulders. Why? Probably because whoever the editor is of the program over the years, since he disappeared in 2006… Wanted to really zoom in and show, there's Brian. See him right there? Well, that's not the whole video. What we learned from that TV show is that the video actually shows more than what we've seen over the years. It actually shows – it's not longer anything. It's just – it's more zoomed back, and so you see more of – you see more of the screen, and what you can see is you can actually see the two other young women in the picture, whereas in most of the videos that the public has seen since 2006, you can barely see them at all because their head – you can maybe just see the tops of their heads way at the bottom of the screen. Well, in the raw video from that camera from, from 2006, it shows a lot more of them, more of their body. And what had happened was that somebody that Kelly has been working with on Brian's case watched the show, watched it a lot – I guess a lot more closely than the rest of us did, and noticed Brian had some weird movements while standing around the two women. It just looked kind of odd. And so – and what's interesting is what – Kelly originally pointed out to me and what I eventually saw were two different things. Because in the video, and once again I urge you to go to Unfound's YouTube channel and find that video and watch it for yourself where I do this long diagram of uh, what I see, is that in the video you can now see that Brian was standing very close to one of these women. Very, very close. Like she's standing and he has her like his chest and stomach up against her side or kind of and his hands are very close to her purse that's what you'll see but then he kind of steps away it's it's horrible to try to explain this on audio just audio he kind of steps away she like turns his back her back to him and then his arm goes out and it obviously has something in it, and while she has her, her back turned, he, like, reaches around her, but when he pulls his hand back, whatever was in his hand isn't there anymore. Now, why hasn't – once again, why hasn't this been seen for all these years? Because the video has always been cropped. You could never see what Brian's arms are doing because they were out of frame. So I took a long look at this. I actually put I, – I, I, fortunately, I had DVR'd the show. So I was able to go back on my DVR, and I kept playing it over and over and over and over and over. And what I also did was I videoed it with my phone, put it on – see, these are the things that go on behind the scenes in Unfound that most people don't realize. I do this with a lot of different things. It just is coming up now for something like Brian Schaefer's Disappearance. But I videoed that section of the show. Then I put that file into iMovie on my Mac, and I copied it, copied it, copied it, copied it, copied it, like ten times over. And so I could watch the same clip over and over and over again, one after the other, just a few seconds, few seconds, over and over and over and over and over. Instead of having to watch it, then rewind and let it play, I could do that and made that file. I put that on my computer so I could watch it. He certainly put something in her purse. And dare I say it, I think it was his phone. Now, before you think that I'm crazy, once again, go watch the video. I, I can't tell you how many times I say the, the two words once again. Go watch the video. But before you think I'm crazy, it's not that crazy because of other facts, to use a Phil Klein word, that go along with Brian's disappearance. One of the big question marks has always been why did his phone ping in another town like days later or even longer than that after he went missing? Well, just who happens to live – it wasn't Columbus. It was another town. Well, who, just who happened to live in that town was this the young woman who had the purse. Her mother lived in that town. Also, there was on that night after Brian would have been there, uh, there was a big question. Why did his phone continue to ping right around that area of the Ugly tune of Salina when nobody saw him? How is that possible? Well – Guess who lived within a block of the Ugly Tuna? Now, granted, Brian didn't live that far away either, but both of those women lived closer to the Ugly Tuna than Brian did. And the phone continued to ping in that immediate area of the Ugly Tuna that night. So these things start to kind of come together. Now, you may say, well, come on, Ed. Are you saying that she didn't know that he put the phone – his phone in her purse, and are you saying that when she eventually did find his phone that she didn't say anything about it? Hear me out, and I've run this. I've talked to Kelly about this. We've talked back and forth about this. She seems to think it makes a decent amount of sense, and I'm not saying either of these women had anything to do with Brian's disappearance. Please do not think that because that's not what I think. It could be this. If Brian did plan to take off or leave, and of course a lot of people think that. I'm not saying I believe that, but let's just entertain the idea. A perfect way to do that would be to have some somebody else having his phone. They go one direction. He goes the other. So what then would happen is that the phone gets dropped into her purse without her knowing. She goes home, goes to bed. The phone is on, but it's at her apartment, and she doesn't know it's there. And this is all believable. Why? Because it's not like women, when they go home every night, they just empty out their purses. Right, ladies? In fact, it very well may be that the way I think I know women and having girlfriends sometimes is that you have a variety of purses for different occasions. For work, going out to a nightclub, going out with your parents, just depends on what you're wearing and everything else. A lot of women are like that. Some aren't, but a lot of women are. So She could have gone home, set that purse down, his phone's in it. Maybe it's on silent or something, and it's sitting there, and it's on. And then she just goes to bed, goes about her business, and that purse just continues to sit there. There are other things in it, including the phone. But she goes on with her life, doesn't use that purse again. But then somewhere down the road, she does. And she gets this purse out, puts some more things in it, and she goes to her mother's, who lives in that town. And for some reason, she's going through her purse looking for something, and she finds this phone. She's like, whose phone's this? And it's a month later, several months later, however long it was, after um, Brian went missing. Of course, it would be dead by that time. It was on. The battery eventually die. She's going through her purse, finds this phone. There's no charge to it. She's like... Where did this come from? What's anybody going to do? Person's going to plug it in, charge it back up to try to figure out whose it is. So what happens? Uh, maybe there's this universal charger. Maybe she has to get a charger, has to buy a charger. Who knows? She plugs it in. It warms up, gets enough charge. She can. She could start going through the contacts and everything else. And what does she find? Oh my gosh, this is Brian's phone. Now she knows that he's missing. She already would know by that time that there are all sorts of rumors, people looking for him and everything. And she probably might think to herself, all right, I was out with him that night. Maybe did this, maybe did that. We were talking together, but I can't figure out – Is anybody really going to believe me when I tell them that I didn't know I had Brian Schaefer's phone all this time? Probably not, and he's missing. This doesn't look good, and I don't want all this attention. And I know I didn't do anything to him, but I have his phone, and I can't explain how. Little did she know there was this video that I believe shows that he put his phone in her purse. Little did she know that that would exist. But I can certainly see why a person would make the decision, you know what? Brian's missing. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know how this phone got here. This is going to be big trouble. I don't want my name in the paper. I'm not going to do anything about it. That is, to me, given what I know about how people act, would not be surprising to me. We cover – hey, we cover disappearances all the time. Where you think friends would be helpful in disappearances, and they aren't. happens all the time. And so I would put this in that category. I think it's something to consider, certainly. Because, not just because of the video, but because there are other items that then seem, I mean, they always seemed kind of, I don't know what to think of that. Probably true, but I don't know how that could have anything to do with the disappearance. But believing that he put his phone in her purse certainly would then change things. The other issue, though, is if he put his phone in her purse, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was walking away from his life. You have to remember, guys do a lot of um, strange things to meet women, to try to run into them somewhere, somehow, do something. You know, um, and the, Of course, the example I always think of is uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. If you're old enough, you remember that movie. But the kind of geeky guy uh, – He's talking to that uh, Damone guy, the, the, the ticket scalper guy from Fast Times or Ridgemont High. And Damone's saying to him, this is just going to be like last year. You had the hots for that woman at the photo mat. You, bought, uh, you went over there. You bought $40 of uh, film. You don't even own a camera. Uh, ladies, this is what men do. <laughs> if you want to know what men do to meet women's stupid things, it's stuff like that. And so – I can see a, a situation where he put the phone in her purse, and then planned maybe at some point to think, you know what, in a, you know, find a way to contact or some other way. say, so, you know what, I can't find my phone. Could it have fallen into your purse? You know, I was really drunk that night. Is it possible that I could have fallen in? It could have fallen into your. A purse that night. Did I drop it? I just can't remember that night. such so foggy. She goes to her purse. She finds the phone. And then he gets to see her again. Guys do stuff like this. Ladies, they do. We do. I've never done anything specifically like that. But you know what I mean. I can see that. And it should be known that I think that this young woman did kind of have a thing for Brian. So that would help. So it just kind of, kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, Kelly wanted me to look at this video. I, she wanted me to really concentrate on his hands being by her purse earlier in, in the seconds before that. Whereas then I got caught up in this different part, and that's uh, what got Kelly's attention, and uh, has gotten a lot of other people's attention. And so then I did that video. I video. I just did it right off the top of my head. If you watched the video, then you know. You just never know when you're going to run into something like that. And you know I'm not some sort of conspiracy theory guy. But you can't deny that Brian's actions, when you watch his eyes, when you watch his body language, when you watch that arm go around her and her purse is right there, you can't deny it. The real problem is, unfortunately, his hand and the purse are just out of the frame. But it's – because what he does, he kind of puts his arm around, does something, and then pulls it back and then steps to the side almost like what a pickpocket might do. I urge you to watch the video on Unfound's YouTube channel for yourself and get back to me on that. But that's the update. This has certainly um, started a new wrinkle uh, in the investigation, but this is also what happens – when raw video is not released to the public, it's, it's too short or they're zoomed in and you never know. There might be other things on that video besides just looking at the missing person himself that could be important. This also tells me kind of that I was exactly right on my assessment back in May of 2021 when I said this this police officer, Columbus police officer, said he took all the video home and watched it. I don't believe that for a second. So we even have more proof that it didn't. You know why? Because this has never been brought up before. This has never been brought up before. And so I'm asking the Columbus Police Department. We know you have all the video. Just release all of it. Let us just see the whole thing, all the hours and hours. We know you have it. Just release it. Release it to the public and let us watch it for ourselves. I still believe that actually Brian did leave by the escalator that night. It just wasn't right at 2 a.m. He did something, did this, and the video just hasn't been watched. This police officer did it. Who knows what he did? Maybe he said he did it so he could get a promotion. I don't know. But police officers, investigators taking video home to watch hours and hours of it does not happen. And that's the update for Brian Schaefer. Next update, Toby Anderson. Toby Eugene Anderson was a 16-year-old from Northern California. He was a prankster who had spent time in Juvenile Hall. During the year of 1986, Toby spent time in Selma, Oregon with his uncle and family. Everything seemed fine. Seemed fine. Then in the fall, Toby allegedly ran away. He was never seen again. DNA uh, tests are still being done for the remains uh, that were found in Oregon. They've not been identified yet. Not sure if they're going to be Toby Anderson or not. Of course, we know there are a lot of people missing from up in that area where Toby went missing, so there are a lot of different choices. But what has also transpired, and I've kind of alluded to this before, I'm going to do it again, is that there is a decent possibility, if we're to believe, that Toby's uncle caused his disappearance. And not to remind you, this uncle eventually was charged with sex crimes, and he's in jail. Of course, he denies he did any of it. We know how that goes. But there continues to be the belief, and maybe even more so than ever, that this uncle actually was responsible for the disappearance of someone else. And if I were to say the name, I'm sure some of you have heard about this disappearance before. Don't think I can yet name uh, the missing person. I'll just say it's a missing child and it's a girl. And it's not in Oregon or California. But there are, once again, just reasons to believe that uh, maybe the kind of the timeline works out and – the vehicle that the uncle had at the time that this is now a concern and it's a disappearance that is still unsolved maybe in 2022 uh we can cover that disappearance as well and then we can all link it together unfortunately uh this missing girl's family um, just isn't very talkative these days they used to be but not now so but we'll give it a shot, but I just want you to know that very well may be continue. there's a continuing belief, continuing belief, and even more than ever, this uncle um, could be a serial killer and very well may – of course, we're going to think about two. Then we have to start thinking about three, four, or five he might be responsible for. So that's the update for Toby Anderson. The next update, Chance Engelbert. Chance Leslie Engelbert was a 25-year-old from Moorcroft, Wyoming. He was a married father and was in the process of changing careers. On July sixth, 2019, while in Gering, Nebraska, Chance walked off, af- walked off after getting into a disagreement with his wife's family. An hour later, Chance was caught on video walking by himself. He was never seen again. The update is back in November. Uh, some remains were found to the east of Garing, Nebraska, in a town, in the area of a town called Melbata, Nebraska. I hope I pronounced that right. M-E-L-B-A-T-A. I think these remains were found by accident, and my understanding is that they were, were near the North Platte River, which was talked about at the time in the interview that I did with Chance's Mother And in fact, I did a, a map analysis of the area looking at where Chance was seen on video twice and the direction in which he was going. And I think if you could read between the lines, it made a lot of sense to me. It did seem to me that he was headed, although he was headed in a west direction, that if he was following some type of Google Maps that or Waze or something like that, that it would have taken him to a spot that looks like it has a bridge over the North Platte River, but there is no bridge there. Why that is, I don't know. But it would then, I guess, maybe make sense. I think the North Platte River does flow west to east. So conceivably, if Chance did go into the river at Garing, then it was going in an east direction toward Malbata. And then I guess – It could possibly be him, but what I want you to understand for this update is that Melbada is to the east of Gehring, but the last point that Chance was seen on video, he was walking west uh, in Gehring, so not sure what to think about that. There are other people missing from that part of Nebraska, so it's not automatic that it's Chance. Surely not. And we also have to remember that uh, just because remains are found does not mean this is a missing person that went missing within like the last 10 years, 20 years, or the 21st century. This could be remains that could have been out there for a very, very long time. But as of the recording of this episode, of the publishing of this episode, and it's been almost two months since these remains were found, there's still no word as to who the remains are. And I guess there's DNA testing. The remains, I guess, were in such bad condition that they had to do DNA testing to see if they can compare it to Chance and I guess any other family who has a missing person in that area. But I would say in general this could fit my theory of what happened to Chance that just wasn't in his right mind, was really ticked off at his wife's family. He stormed off really Um, with the tent of walking back to Wyoming, remember he tried to get a, a ride from a friend of his. And when he couldn't get a ride, he might've just decided, you know, I'm going to start walking and I'll hitchhike or something. And and he's following Google maps. And in that video, you, you can see him looking down at his phone. Could have just followed it to that river and said, Oh my gosh, this, this app sent me in the right, wrong direction. And I don't want to have to backtrack and there's a storm coming I'm just going to try to chance it, get across this river, get to the other side and keep walking. And something went wrong. I could certainly see that. So um, I'll keep my eyes on it. Uh, I've even seen that Adventures with Purpose were planning to... uh, They were planning to maybe dive at a lake near Gehring. And because of this finding of these remains, they've put that off until those DNA or those remains are um, identified. But as of the recording of this episode, still no idea who the remains are. Next update, Brenda Sika. Brenda Sue was a 43-year-old from Huntsville, Alabama. She was a bartender and military vet. In early July 2017, Brenda moved out of an apartment in. That had been paid for by her married boyfriend. Despite a forthcoming email where Brenda said she was in Wyoming. There's no proof of this. She was never seen again. Now this is uh, Brenda's is the first. Uh, disappearance we covered that now falls into the most recent. Um, catalog of disappearances that we've covered since September. In fact this uh, Brenda's. Disappearance was covered right after the fifth anniversary episode back in September of 2021. The update is that her married boyfriend, Jim, died just, I think, sometime in October. So only maybe five, six weeks after this episode came out. I'm thinking that is a coincidence. I'm not saying that the episode came out and it gave him a heart attack or anything, I had seen pictures of him, like Mike Moran, not the picture of health, although Jim was a lot younger than Mike Moran was. Uh, Jim, I think, was still in his 50s, although late 50s. I'm 51, and I think if you would have put myself and Jim together, we would have looked like we were separated by like 30 years and not eight or whatever it was. But he died. He had some... um, Something happened. I don't think that he was in the hospital uh, at the time of the publication of the episode, but sometime after that, um, he went into the hospital, and it was um, Brenda's sister, uh, the guest for the episode, uh, who was keeping tabs on this, and he died, I think, once again sometime in October. So we now have no chance to ask him any Further questions regarding Brenda's disappearance, I think it makes a lot of sense to believe that he could have had something to do with it, whether he went over there and she was dead maybe from an overdose or something and covered it up or something a little more violent than that by Jim. On the other hand, as I showed in the episode, that – Brenda had posted a picture on her Facebook page not long before she went missing of uh, a town in Alabama and kind of portraying as if she were there. She had gone there on a trip or something, whereas I was able to determine that the picture was old. It was like from 2011 or 2012 or something because one of the buildings had changed, and so that picture was not from 2017. It was like five years before that. So – She was misleading people about what she was doing and where she was going. I don't maybe think – I don't think she was maybe going anywhere. So that has to be factored into what you think possibly could have happened to her. I personally believe that the, the key to her disappearance is still in that apartment complex, learning more about how she moved in, how she moved out, what the condition was of the apartment because I could find no record of Brenda or Jim being connected to that apartment complex at all. And I looked hard. I mean if I was able to prove that a photo wasn't from 2017, it was actually from like 2012 or something, you know how uh, much time I spent on this episode making sure we got the information correct and trying to find as much as I could. I could find no proof that Brenda ever lived there or Jim ever had an apartment there in his name or anything so still big mystery but um jim is gone and so he can now not be a resource in the investigation whether he had anything to do with the disappearance or not this will be the uh, final update for this episode and it concerns ashley simpson Ashley Simpson was a 32-year-old from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. She had once worked at a gold mine and had a tattoo that said Gypsy. On April 27, 2016, Ashley and the man she was living with got into an argument in Salmon Arm, British Columbia after going on a trip for the day. The man says Ashley picked up her things and walked off. She was never seen again. Since this episode came out, and as you know, this is an episode that uh, just came out a couple months ago, her remains have been found in the Salmon Arm area, and this guy that she met while she was working with her father in Upper Canada uh, has now been charged with her murder. I I can't say that I'm very surprised by that. I'm guessing – most of you are not surprised by that as well. Um, a friend of this guy said that he had seen Ashley and this guy arguing. And if there's ever – I don't know if there's a better example of the reason that in these types of disappearances where a guy says, yeah, we got into an argument and my wife walked off, these are the, these are the reasons we – suspect the men so often in these types of disappearances because they often are the perpetrators just like in ashley's do i think that um the episode coming out had something to do with the the remains being found i do not uh my impression is that these remains uh, ashley's remains were found by accident Uh, By luck, I guess, is the other way you could put it. I do not think that there was some organized search effort and came across uh, Ashley's remains. So she is no longer with us, but this is a disappearance. I don't think any of us are surprised by the outcome. We may be surprised the remains were found so quickly after the episode came out, um, but that's probably the only surprise Why these remains – of course, this is a disappearance that was five and a half years old at the time of the remains being found. Why the remains weren't found earlier, I don't know. But uh, Ashley's mother and I have had some short conversations back and forth after um, this news came out. Uh, it's, It's very sad. So um, this is another one of those, the man said, types of disappearances where we now know that the man was lying. As for all of the unfound nows, uh, just a couple update episodes ago, I started including those disappearances in these – what is it? Three times a year that I do these update episodes. Just a couple update episodes ago, I started including all the Unfound Now cases as well. And there are no updates on any of them. If you're unfamiliar with the Unfound Now episodes that I do on YouTube, I urge you to go to our channel on YouTube and check them out. I uh, started doing those in the summer of 2020, and so I've done about, I guess, 18. they once a month I do those uh, recent disappearances. And the first so many, like the first five or six, have been solved, but all of them since then have have not been. Although uh, I did have an update last time that Leah Scheibel from Las Vegas, uh, she did return to her family, and she is alive. But other than that, there's just no updates on any of them over the last four months. And now... If you could please pause whatever you are doing as a sign of respect for all the missing people featured on Unfound and Unfound now as I read off all their names. Suzanne Lyle, Jason Jolkowski, Jesse Foster, Rosemarie Marie Gayhart, Ben Padilla, Kelly Rothwell, Joshua Guimond, Donnie Smatlak, Andrea Bowman, Robin Abrams, Regina Marie Boss, Christopher Hyde, Jeff Nichols, Rebecca Gary, James Walker, Teresa Butler, Charlotte Paulus, Lola Catherine Fry, Eric Franks, Jeff Joseph, Donna Mikalenko, Dave Madot, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer, Claudia Wells, Peggy and Patty McDaniel, Shannon Turner, Brandi Wells, Kleshindra Hall, Ronnie Russell, Esther Westenbarger, Shane Fell, Ashley Eifert, Brandon Williams, Craig Freer, Pamela Golden, Chip Campbell, Amanda Deguio, the passengers and crew of Flight 370, April Pitzer, Jennifer Wilkerson, Kent Jacobs, Aaron Gilbert, Tammy Leppert, Crystal Morrison, Chris Turner, Linda K. Carroll, Nikki McCown, Helen Diamond, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman, Lucinda Hules, Ashley Kohler, Debbie Lowe, Patrick Beavers, Clinton Nelson, Troy Galloway, Patty Action, Danielle Bell, Evelyn Hartley, Dal Phillips, Tyler Stice, Bill Underhill, Patty Taylor, Aaron Barnard, Jeremy Burt, Brian Sullivan, Nikki Wells, Marina Bolter, Mandy Stokes, Greg Brooks, Rebecca Henderson, Dominique Holly Grisham. Tiffany Daniels, Nicholas Masucci, Donald Irwin, Billy De Silvestro, Renee Yergain, Mikkel Biggs, Al Copper, J.R. Mollahan, Jamie Bowen, Travis Robertson, Rosemary Rapp, Kristen Mottaferri, Zoe Campos, Sean Ginyard, Thomas Brown, Amanda Fravel, Julie Early, Ellen Sloan, Renee LaManna, Nico Lisi, Leah Peebles, Melissa Hasley, Kimberly Raymer, Stephen Kocher, Bonnie Joseph, Immaculate Basil, Bobby Campbell, Kimberly Norwood, Alyssa Turney, Bobby Tennyson, Dale Kerstetter, Lacey Buenfil, Peggy McGuire, Jansen Brewer and Daniel Braden, Robert Cox, Lucas Degernes, Stephen Adams, Ashley Summers, Bonnie and Jeremy Degas, Judith Empke, Jessica Hamby, Tim Beauchart, Devin Bond, Juanita Nelson. Desiree Ferris, Angie Arnell, Deborah Asbury, Sean Koski, Mary Lands, Devin Brown Busetta, Shanna Boido, Travis Murrow, Keith Fetter, Layla Faulkner, Megan Lancaster, Kelly Sims, Jack Hemby, Barbara Frame, Dorianne Myers, Austin Pevo, Christine Hamilton, Monica Appleton, Jonathan Estes, Molly Miller and Colt Haynes, Donnie Martin III, Kamisha Hollis, Lisa Wallace, Tammy McKittrick, Julie C., Stephanie Clemens, Andy Chapman, Trevor Nichols, Tiffany Johnson, Tyler North, David Keezy, Lucero Princess Sarabia, Brandy Myers, Jale Hamblin, Bradley Allen, Timothy Guy, Ronald McNutt, Cameron Remmer, Tammy Arthur and Chad Peters, Jesse Ross, Lisa Shuttleworth, Jackson Miller, Patrick Reed, Jeremy Goodwin, Mary Jane Van Gilder, Phyllis Corbin, Eric Alvarado, Cassandra Ramirez, April Andrews, David Hardy Jr., Dennis J. Lushball, Christy Nichols, Christopher Sanders, Danielle Sleeper, Julie Wefflin, Shelva Rafty, Rodney Kaiser, Christina Branham and Christopher Mittendorf, Gregory Howells, Brian Cook, Charles Thompson, Jessica Garino, Jacob Paddock Weeks, Jackie Bucky Letney, Frederick Joseph Bain, Vanessa Orrin, Jennifer Casper-Ross, Robbie Hurt, Unique Harris, Douglas Jones, Deborah Bowman, Bradley Brooks, Angela Green, Jody Husentrout, Brennan Smokey, Riles Chapman, Marion Hurley, Gayla Shaper, Caleb Powell, Chelsea Kobo, Bonnie Santiago, TJ Murray, Noah Davis, Patty Dudek, Ben Archer, Jake Lachelet, Sky Burnley, Kayleen Oling Stephanie Hartwell Nylene Marshall Kaya Taylor Pearl Pinson Brenda Condon Alwyn Albright Skye Tosick, Linda Stoltfus Erica Lloyd Mary Lane Carter Stephanie Hollingsworth Corey Moore, Alan White, Jason Landry, Aaliyah Scheibel, Kirsten Bruggemann, Mark Penella, Sandy Knipe, Brian Schaefer, Teresa Woolard, Toby Anderson, David Schrader, Chance Engelbert. Julianne Jelay, Rachel Sirks, Sean Antill, Randy Duran, Rashawn Francis, Amanda Ward Romine, Crystal Bailey, Cynthia Ba Traoré, Luis Devia, Candy Gonzalez, Brenda Sika, Laverda Sorrell, Nicholas Shin, Kevin Newen, Ashley Simpson, Leanne Hosberg, Alicia Markovich, Audrey Herron, Lanine Rogers, Beatrice Viela, Allie Lowitzer, Jamie Peterson, Belinda Blainer, Michael Vaughn, Wendy Guessing, Shannon Miller, Glenda Parton, and Dwayne Selby, Heidi Plank. Please do not forget these people, and please, if you have the time and passion, help one of these families find the answers they deserve. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you used to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful New Year's. I'm Ed Densel, and you've been listening to Unfound.